Hi, and welcome to episode 64 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone, from awardsdaily.com. Today's the eagerly anticipated 2005 Oscar year, uh, which really, I think, kind of changed the way people look at the Oscars, the way they talk about the Oscars, and how the Oscars themselves vote. And I really do feel that... um, if the Brokeback Mountain year hadn't happened, uh, I, I would I would actually make the bold statement to say that Twelve Years a Slave would not have won Best Picture, and I will explain why I think that later on uh, in the podcast. But this was the year that Crash uh, upset in Best Picture and beat Brokeback Mountain um, in kind of a surprise eleventh hour shocker, and it was such a big deal that Kenneth Turan wrote an op-ed the next day about it. And people were really talking about it. It wasn't just something that went quietly away. It wasn't It wasn't like there were a lot of people protesting the protesters. Everybody kind of felt the same way about that loss. A few people were kind of, you know, saying, oh, no, Crash was, was a good movie. It should have won. But more people were kind of like, no, you know, Brokeback had come so far and it had risen in esteem as the season had worn on. And um, it just felt like it was the natural best picture of the year. And it, it, it when, when it upset with Crash, it, it was probably along the lines of Chariots of Fire beating Reds, I would say. It's along those lines. Um, except for adding to it was one of the first time times in, in Oscar history that homophobia was really a major influencer. And it was debated as to whether that choice was homophobia or was it just the movie. And people continue to debate that up to today and we can talk about those two points and and but we can start off with uh with crash well, i i personally don't feel like bashing it too much because i feel like paul haggis has sort of paid a price for being that movie that beat brokeback mountain and i feel like as as much as i did not think the movie was worthy to win um if all he's got in life is that best picture oscar fine let him have it you know for me, it's I, I rewatched it again, and, I, and my mission was to watch it with an open mind, not as the movie that beat Brokeback Mountain and Munich, but just a movie on its own terms. And I'm sorry to say it still doesn't hold up really well for me. It's um, it's a subject that deserves better treatment than, than the movie gave it. Um, the, the main problem is that it, it's just so... It's so heavy-handed and kind of contrived. You know, it's one of those kind of movies where things happen in the plot not because they make sense, but because the writer slash director wants to make a point or hit an emotional point. And there's uh, two or three times that that happens in the movie that just pulls me right out of it. The first one is where Thandie Newton chooses to be burned to death in the car rather than be rescued by the racist cop who had fingered her earlier in the movie. That just seems ridiculous to me. I mean, you're, you're talking about your own survival. You, you, you quickly forget about other things like that. And then there was the scene um, where Ryan, was it Ryan Phillippe? Mm. Where he picks up the black guy and then ends up freaking out on him and, and shooting him. And I kind of felt like if he was that hair trigger mistrustful of black people he never would have picked the guy up in the first place but he had to because the plot required it and they needed to make the point at the end where he he kills him and it had to be a thing so little things like that just 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 
pull me out of the movie. And and I well, kind of felt like Haggis was was writing things that were sort of outside of his realm of experience. He was trying to make a point, and so it doesn't come across well and human. The one story that really does work for me, and it's and it worked for me even better this time, was the whole Sandra Bullock story, where and which I think actually the true the true story with his wife that they were carjacked, and that's what or mugged or something, and that's what inspired the movie in the first place. But the, I felt, I could feel him feeling the truth of that storyline. And, and even though it kind of ended with a sort of half-assed, happy hug at the end, it all made, it all made really, really good sense to me and was, was believable and real. See, I'm not going to cut Paul Haggis any slack. I will say that, that uh, I felt the same way about Million Dollar Baby, that it was manip- manipulative and constructed falsely in the same way that, that Crash was, was, as if he had in his mind the punchline that he wanted to, to achieve at the end of the movie, and everything else was constructed to support that punchline, which was false in the first place. And it just seems like um, it's the very definition of manipulative when you make when you write a script like that where you have these plot points that you want to make especially when you have so many coincidences in a movie where a movie relies so much on coincidental uh, coincidental um, interactions of people and people running across each other at multiple times in different circumstances when you make a movie like that those coincidences become like really transparently fakey to me after a certain point and there's a tipping point where the whole movie I just start to doubt the integrity of the writing, and I will I will say that instead of feeling like that Paul Haggis had to pay a price for for Crash beating Brokeback, I would say that what happened after Crash is that there was almost like buyer's remorse in Hollywood, and people began to see that he's really that Paul Haggis was really not all that, and he's really a little bit of a hack. I will say he's a hack, and that then they he, they fell for two of his movies, and after that they saw they started to see through him. I just don't really think there's much to him intellectually, and I think that the two major messages of Crash, to me, are almost repulsive. The two messages that he seems to be trying to teach us in Crash are that every race, every racist person deep down has a heart of gold. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, every person who's a caring, sensitive, nice person on the outside has a, has a racist buried inside of them. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those things are patently false and fake, because I have never met a racist who's had a change of heart and become suddenly to have a heart of gold. And I've never met a really truly sensitive, kind, good person who has this seething racist buried deep inside of them. Mm-hmm. And that's the point that he was making in all the characters. They're, all the characters in Crash are one or the other. They're either, they all have a change of a personality that emerges from out of nowhere from inside of them and it, and they all it all seems really false to me uh, see i i i have to disagree with you and that i think that in 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 a lot of well-meaning decent people there's a degree of racism the problem with crash is that people don't walk around spouting racist things or wearing a t-shirt that says i'm a racist you know it's not that obvious it's more it's more in in how you react to people or how you expect them to behave based on their their color or their sexuality and i think more people than who will admit it are have a degree of that and to me that's why the movie despite the fact that it has huge flaws i still think it's an important movie because it it confronts racism and the ra- a racism in the here and now whereas which 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 makes people uncomfortable and it should make them uncomfortable and people should be questioning whether their reactions to people are bigoted or racist and it the fact that it takes place in the here and now 
makes it even more important because a lot of times we'll watch movies that deal with racism, but they took place, you know, 50, 60, 100 years ago. And it's too easy to say, well, that was then and this is now. We've solved racism. We don't need to worry about it anymore. This is a movie that, for all of its flaws, is trying to confront a real issue that still happens today. And I think it's actually... I think it's a good thing in a way that the that the academy recognized it for that even even though I wish that it were a much better movie. I would like the locks changed again in the morning. And you know what? You might mention that we'd appreciate it if next time they didn't send a gang member. A gang member. Yes, yes. Well, you mean that kid in there? Yes, the guy in there with the shaved head, the pants around his oh, ass, the prison tattoo. Those are not prison tattoos. Oh, really? And he's not going to go sell our key to one of his gangbanger friends the moment he is out our door. We've had a really tough night. I think it'd be best if you just went upstairs right and now. And wait for them to break in. I just had a gun pointed in my face. You lower your voice. And it was my fault because I knew it was going to happen. But if a white person sees two black men walking towards her and she turns and walks in the other direction, she's a racist, right? Well, I got scared and I didn't say anything. And 10 seconds later, I had a gun in my face. Now, I am telling you, your amigo in there is going to sell our key to one of his homies. And this time, it'd be really fucking great if you acted like you actually gave a shit. I will say when I first saw it, I, and it, you know, it came out in May. It came out early in the summer, was long before there was any talk of the Oscars, and I never expected it to be in play for the Oscars. But I went to see it by myself in the theater, and there was hardly anyone else in the theater. And I was the first time I saw it, I thought, wow, this is a Hollywood movie that's addressing racism. This is really something you just never see, and I was impressed by it. And I, took, I wanted to take a couple of my black friends to see it. And so I did, like the next week we went to see it, and they immediately, I could see that they were like squirming throughout the movie, and after the movie we um, we argued about it and they told me that it was just total bullshit that it wasn't anything like anything that ever they had ever experienced in real life and i realized when they said that that i that for me too this is not anything that i've ever seen or experienced in real life these are all these fabricated coincidences and happenstances that 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 were just you know creative out of created out of the blue by haggis in order to support this premise and the premise itself was false and and i it took it took feedback from from some friends of mine before I realized that, but I was I was sucked into it the first time that I saw it, and I was impressed by it enough that I wanted to show off and bring my black friends to see this great real movie about racism. And as soon as I saw it, they said, "Man, this is like fucking bullshit." Um, well, I want <laughs> to say two yeah, I want to say two things about Crash, and the first is I also want to talk about that Oscar year because it was really interesting and significant from my point of view because I was running my site then, and I remember. The reaction that it had with readers and still to this day that it resonates, um, the decision, what it did, how it made people feel, um, how it made an entire community feel rejected by the Oscars that they loved so much. But um, the thing about Crash is on the positive side of it, you know, just like with Million Dollar Baby in Chicago, who knew that the Oscars would become so white and so male? in the ensuing years who knew i didn't Mm -hmm. i thought okay great diverse cast you know didn't think twice about it i thought whitey guilt movie great you know we're going to alleviate whitey guilt that's what this movie's about it's about white people coming to terms with their own racism fine um but who knew that hollywood would change in such a dramatic fashion and so when i look at crash now i see a cast of very diverse actors 
black women, my God, you know, Hispanics, Asians <laughs> in one movie. Mm-hmm. And that blows that's what my I mind. loved about it too. When I first saw it, I really I was really impressed by that. Go ahead. And that, and that blows my mind about it. And and all too often, um, movies like that don't get a fair shake in Hollywood. Even if it is at the end of the day just a way to reassure white people that they're doing the right thing. Even still, just the mere fact of writing a film about that many diverse characters to me is a is a heroic thing in Hollywood, especially now. I wouldn't have thought that back then, and I certainly didn't in two thousand five. Believe me. But I think it now, only because so many years have gone by and I've seen how things have so dramatically changed. But let's just talk quickly about about that year. Brokeback Mountain had won almost every award heading into the race. It didn't win the Ace Eddie Award, the editors. No comment on that. Um, And it didn't win the uh, um, Screen Actors Guild. And the thing about Crash and the thing about Argo... These kind of movies, they appeal to actors. They're, they're the two things the Academy is, uh, loves. The Academy is dominated by actors. There's like 1,200 or so in the actors branch, bigger than any other branch. Um, they like character movies, character-driven films, and they like movies that are about the actors. And that's what Crash is. That's what Argo is. That's what they like. And so looking back on that year you could see how easy it was for crash to win although no one was predicting it except i think david carr and maybe ebert were the only two who were predicting um crash to win i actually got in a fight with roger ebert that year about this it was the only exchange i ever had with ebert and he pretty much eviscerated me (laughs) (laughs) pretty much it was really humiliating it was like yeah it was like playing chess with a really good chess player it was like wow Okay, sorry. <laughs> That's I, why he makes the big bucks. Yeah, came at him with guns blazing and homophobia and broke back. And how could he have endorsed Crash? And didn't he see what he did? And doesn't he know that it's such a... And, uh, yeah, he just knocked down point after point after point in a really, really biting, cutting way. He was he was brilliant, Ebert. And he you don't often see that side of him. And I wish to God I still have those emails. And I don't. But... Um, but yeah, Ebert was one of the main proponents supporting Crash. And again, looking back on it, I can see why, you know. It's just that I was caught up in Ang Lee and Brokeback Mountain and homophobia and, and, you know, this wonderful, beautiful masterpiece about, you know, gay cowboys just and Heath Ledger's performance. And, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal is just, to me, it was such a moving, exceptional film and still is to me to, to this day. Um, so that, to me, Crash is really dwarfed by all four of the other nominees in that category and many other films that weren't nominated, including Grizzly Man, mm-hmm. History of Violence, you know, and a few other movies. Um, That's exactly what I said in the comments tonight. I, I was kind of, I don't want to bash Crash anymore because it's not as if Crash is a terrible movie. It's just that, it's just as you said, and it's, I said this in the comments, it's just that all the four other nominees were all better. All four nominees were better than Crash, yeah. and several other movies that weren't even nominated were better than Crash. And so in comparison to bona fide, absolute, breathtaking masterpieces like Brokeback Mountain and, and Capote and Good Night and Good Luck, movies like that, and Munich, you know, it makes yeah. Crash look so skimpy in, in, in comparison. It really and does. Not- I mean, it's crazy. You're right. But it really does. I mean, think of Capote. Capote is a perfect film. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like I've watched that movie maybe 10, 15 times or something, and I cannot find a single flaw in that film. You know? 
and it's it's just great. But so, should we talk about? Are we done with Crash, or should we move on to? I'm, I'm, we're done bashing Crash, but I think it's really interesting that that we've talked about <laughs> uh, a lot in the past two or three episodes about how the rise of the internet and the blogging community started to have an effect and a feedback in a in a feedback mm. loop about right. the Oscars, and it really reached a crescendo that I remember yes. seeing about broke back and Crash. It, it was the first time that I really realized that there were voices strong enough in the blogosphere and on the internet that could could rise above the din and, and make themselves heard and maybe have an influence. Yes, this is the first for, time that yeah. I ever really became aware of that, Thanks. that there were... I'm sorry. And I think that a lot of critics in the same way, a lot of a lot of the print critics were beginning to establish online presences. And as you say, when Kenneth Turan and when people like David Edelstein wrote things online saying, for instance, I believe it was Edelstein who said that... Uh, um, Crash was a was a feel good movie about racism, which is right. basically what you were saying before. It's a movie that people can watch about racism and see how white people can be redeemed, how racists can be can can just be redeemed if they have the right you know little coincidence that happens to them, and it'll just they'll just have a change of heart. It makes everybody feel good about racism, right. and and when words like that gets out on the internet, people latch onto that and they form these factions and communities and almost like forming teams about movies that I'd never seen that happen before. Well, it was I extraordinary, seen it wasn't happen, it? And it was, it was a really loud, booming battle cry. And it was, you know, and I was front and center. My readers were front and center. I don't think that, I think that was the first moment, as you say, as you astutely say, that Hollywood and, you know, people kind of out there, even critics, became aware of that, became aware of the communities and the mobilization and the power of voice online. Because mm-hmm. it was a huge, the twice twice that I can think of it happened in unison, and one was broke back, and the other was the dark the dark night when it it didn't get a nomination. And both of those incidences changed, I think, the way that the the uh, voters thought about the Oscars. Because when when Brokeback Mountain um, lost, it put the Academy on the defensive, um, and and so you had leading up to the awards, you know, you had people like Sarah Jessica Parker saying she openly she never saw the movie. And Ernest Borgnine saying something about, was he the one who said John Wayne would turn over in his grave or something like that? I think he did, yeah. Uh-huh. And then Tony Borgnine. Curtis joined in with Ernest Borgnine. And there were just lots of people yeah. who were just outspokenly almost proud of the fact that they would not that they were so revolted by the idea of two guys kissing that they would never even watch the movie so how could they you know justify you know voting for it if they wouldn't even watch and they just acted like it was trash them and that's why i think that 12 years a slave when faced with the same thing of a movie that people are raving about that they don't want to see that they went ahead and voted for it anyway because of brokeback i think it set the precedent for that Nobody wanted to see that happen again. And um, the thing was was that once the Academy, once that happened that night, it put them on the defensive. Because as I say before, they were proudly saying that they weren't going to watch it. If they weren't going to watch it, they weren't going to vote for it. David mm-hmm. Carr was covering the Oscars for the New York Times, and he was wandering around parties, and he was listening to what people were saying. And they were, he said they were all saying crash. Everybody was saying, I'm voting for Crash. Crash is a movie I like. I really like that movie. Nobody was talking about Brokeback Mountain. That's how he was able to predict it to win because he listened to what the voters were saying and not what the noise on the Internet was saying. And he was right. But I do think that once it won, once the the cards fell, I do think it shifted perspective ever so slightly, which enabled movies like The Departed to win in 2006, No Country for Old Men to win, and eventually the Hurt Locker. I mean, I think it shattered the Academy's sense of 
what a good movie is at that moment. They they knew they knew that they could no longer just sit back and go, oh, I backed that because I picked. You know that they had to, to pay attention to what the critics were saying, and they had to pay attention to what people were saying was actually a great movie. Yeah, you know, I think part of it too is the fact that it, uh, maybe the Academy never really paid that much attention to critics, and they didn't pay much, that much attention to audiences because where would they? It's not as if the audience that they're hearing what the audience was ever saying to them before the internet. But when the internet came along, the audience had a voice. And if you, and if you were on the internet, if you were, if you were on the internet at all, you saw what the audience was saying. And so you were getting direct feedback from the audience in a way that, that Hollywood has never got before. Mm. Right. You know, the, the audience might've been dissatisfied with their choices before, but they, but the Academy members were never confronted with that. Right. And, and, um, honestly, it's, uh, the critics were really championing Brokeback Mountain, but like you'll you'll hear people in the comments, and you'll hear you'll talk to people, and you'll hear them say stuff like it wasn't that good, or it was boring, or you know whatever they would say about it. That, that people always say, you know, the hell they'll say that about Casablanca if given the chance. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. people people will always say that stuff, but um, but I felt the same way then as I do now. Only that that year sort of firmed up what I really think is that Best Picture should mean something. It shouldn't just reflect their arbitrary tastes at the moment in time. I think it make, puts them... If you look at the films released in 2005, you look at what filmmakers were doing, look at what Cronenberg was doing with History of Violence, what what um, Werner Herzog was doing with Grizzly Man. I know I keep coming back to those two because those are my favorites. But And Bennett Miller with Capote. I mean, and you see these kind of... Or even Clooney with Good Night, Good Luck. You see these interesting, um, daring choices. None of them... As daring and interesting as Ang Lee with Brokeback Mountain, written by Larry McMurtry, by the way, who ended up winning Best Adapted Screenplay, and Ang Lee did win Best Director, um, and then Crash took Picture and Screenplay and Editing, joining Argo as one of the movies that have won three Oscars um, without winning director. You, you, you made a remark about the editing, the lack of an editing nomination, and the fact that the, the Brokeback Mountain didn't win the um, Ace Eddie Award either. And you know, a movie like Crash that has multiple interlocking storylines with a, with like ten different plot lines going on. If an editor can keep that straight, then the editors are impressed with that. That's those, and 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 even. Casual voters who don't know anything about editing at all, if they see all these stories going on at the same time and they can keep the stories straight in their heads, they think that's pretty good editing. And in a way, it is. It's really, it does take a certain type of skill in order to juggle all those storylines. And that's something that a straightforward movie like Brokeback does not have really flashy editing. But they it's still really would have elegantly picked it. edited, they but it's not flashy. They would have picked it if they liked the movie enough. That's what they do. They pick mm-hmm. it if they yeah. like the movie enough. Sometimes it goes in. They actually vote for the best editing, but most of the time they pick the movie they like. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, you know, and that's why an acting ensemble and an Eddie together is a dangerous combination. Because if you have the actors and the editors, I mean, you have the actors, which is a big group, and you have the below-the-liners, the editors, who are really, really important, actually, in the Oscar race, as it turns out. So people can look at that year and they can say, yeah, Brokeback didn't have a editing nomination, and that was the key to... It not winning Best Picture. So the final result of that sentence is, okay, so you were wrong as a pundit. So what? You know, it's like, mm-hmm. so but what? But on the other really, hand, that's the only thing you it, care Brokeback about? did get an Ace Editing nomination, and it was nominated for an editing, Best Editing at the BAFTA Awards. And so it's not as if other organizations did not recognize that it had good editing. It's right, just the that the Oscars it best failed picture, to edit it. Failed the to key to it winning Best Picture is whether or not it has an editing nomination. Generally speaking, that's usually mm-hmm. the way it goes. Um, but like it, you know, it doesn't really matter that the 
that the other groups did only because, well, the Ace Editing did, but the Oscars didn't. And that just shows you where their minds were and why they didn't. But I, I, I agree with you that, like, Crash might have won that anyway, even if it wasn't going to win Best Picture. It probably would have won Editing, too. It's a flashier it's a flashier, more 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 in your face job of editing than Brokeback was for sure, you know. And in a lot of movies that are really in your face with the editing, like the Born Supremacy or whichever one of the Born movies won Best Editing. If a movie is just obviously just edited to death, if it then it's gonna then it's gonna catch people's attention. But it doesn't need an editing win; it just needs an editing nomination. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. And it didn't get that either. I know. But um, speaking of which. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Brokeback, and then I wanted to move on to Munich since we're talking about being wrong, mm-hmm. Oscar pundits being wrong. Um, you, wait a minute. Were you predicting Munich to win? Because I was that year, too. I thought Munich um, would have it. Well, I what happened Munich- was that year I remember being interviewed by USA Today, and they were mm-hmm. asking what movie's going to win Best Picture. Well, everybody was saying Munich. And the thing that was weird about that was that it wasn't even a finished the movie wasn't even finished. And I remember it specifically saying, yeah, that's what we do. We're just all predicting it to win. And he's like, well, why? And I said, I don't know. Everybody's assuming that it's going to win. It's Spielberg. It's about this kind of heavy subject matter. It can't lose. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, and then Munich was seen by people. And what happened was it wasn't the movie that they all had in their heads. It wasn't the movie that they had, they had sort of decided Spielberg was going to make and that was going to be the big Oscar juggernaut. It wasn't that movie. It's a kind of a... It's it's more like a French film in a way, Munich. It's 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 one of his most subdued, strange, raw films I think in his career. It's um, very different. There are a couple of shots that you look at him, you go, yeah, that's Spielberg. But a lot of it isn't. A lot of it is very different. The sex scenes, for instance, are very different from what Spielberg has ever really done before. It's one of his darkest films too. I mean, mm. it um, it it doesn't leave you with a good feeling, you know, and it it. To, are we going to talk about it now instead yeah, of broke back? Yeah, let's talk about it. I guess mm-hmm. we The thing that's great about it, and I think it was ahead of its time, is because it, it's so clearly a post nine eleven movie, and one of the first movies I think to confront the idea of revenge head on, and it's taking a totally different historical event, but one still rooted in terrorism, and basically over and over again asks the question. Is revenge really worth it? And as the the cost of that revenge in the context of the movie keeps going up and up, both the physical cost, the economic cost, and the emotional cost, to the extent that by the end of the film, the the lead character, um, what's his name, Eric Bana, is basically ruined by his experience, you know, trying to get revenge for this this horrible this horrible act of terrorism, and it and. Do you accept the charges? It's after you woke up the baby, but but that's okay. I mean. How are you? I miss you. You're in England or Australia or the North Pole. Yeah, that's right. So listen, I was thinking when I finish doing what I'm doing here, I want to come to Brooklyn to see you. Brooklyn is depressing. It's got more churches than Jerusalem. Listen to her talk. Can you hear me? Can she hear me? Hey, hey, sweetheart, it's your papa. 
When the camera pulls back at the end and you just kind of subtly see the Twin Towers in the background after mm. he's just been, uh, after he's just kind of been left in the lurch, it just brings the whole thing home. And this was a, at a time when nobody was asking whether it was the right thing to be in foreign countries kicking asses in the name of revenge for 9-11. And this was before we finally killed bin laden and i think most people would look now and think we wasted all of this money and and all of these lives and all of this time and have nothing to show for it really even the even the death of bin laden didn't really feel that good for that long and certainly not worth the expense and you know movies at this point were still afraid of addressing 9-11 but munich confronted it head on and i think the fact that it ended on such a downer note it didn't allow people to get their rocks off that it wasn't the revenge story that they wanted to have i think that's why it didn't do as well with critics or with the oscar voters because Mm it unlike crash it didn't leave them feeling good it would have made two different types of people feel bad it would the people who are who already feel like the revenge is a bad idea it would have made them feel bad because they see revenge revenge being carried out and for people who do think revenge is a good idea as you say it leaves them with the feeling like well is it really worth the price and so it it really made nobody happy right which is not is which is not the key to oscar success (laughs) not at all you know when i just saw it and it did come out late in the year i think it wasn't i think it only was released uh, for a week in new york and la around christmas time but it didn't get around to the rest of the country until mid-January or even the 1st of February. And so it was one of those late comers. But when I first saw it, I thought, well, this it's got, it's got to win. It's so fantastically mm-hmm. good. It's even going to be Brokeback. As much as I already knew that I liked Brokeback, I thought Munich was going to take it. And I would have been all right with that. I would have really been yeah, all right well, with that. I was sure. resigned to... I would have been fine with that, too. I mean, mm-hmm. Munich is, a, is an incredibly daring film. Um, mm-hmm. It was a shame that the perception of it was, was all, you know, ended up coloring that movie's fate. It did end up getting a Best Picture nomination, um, but I remember, you know, Jeff Wells, my friend Jeff Wells. He he had had a uh, kind of a, um, a take. He, what he thought was a takedown campaign for Munich for some weird reason. He has it in for Spielberg and always has. Um, he but but Munich also I think had the cover of Time, didn't it? Time. But yeah, before it came out, Spielberg was on the cover of Time, and it said something like it had some kind of headline that you know set it up to fail in a way like it was just too much too soon it was too god they must really time magazine must really love him didn't they put lincoln on the cover too i think they did yeah Yeah. um the headline on the cover of time magazine was spielberg's secret masterpiece okay yeah there you go before anybody had seen it right about munich all that did was put a big target on his back of course as it always does in in oscar season and um um but but like Craig always points out about Jeff is that he definitely took credit for that, and I don't think that that um, uh, was a uh, had he had anything to do with that. I think it was just a matter of perception. People didn't see the movie that they wanted to see, and that was that. It still got picture, director, screenplay. Tony Kushner, by the way, speaking of Lincoln, editing and score. And by the way, John Williams, that has to be his best score. Honestly, 
Like, <laughs> what a beautiful a score. I know, but really, like, that's the most un-John Williams. I know, they're all really great, aren't they? Lincoln's mm-hmm. is fantastic, but yeah. so is this but it, one. But it's out there for a John Williams score. It's not, you would almost not know that, that it was him, whereas 90% of the other Spielberg movies that he's done, you, you can say, oh, yeah, that there's John Williams. But this is, this is... This shows that the dude is still trying. He's not just phoning it in. Yeah. It was an uncharacteristic movie for so many of the people involved with it, and that's also not a very um, uh, dependable ticket to the Oscars when you do something that that, it, that goes against what everyone is expecting. Right. Oh, God, and it's Spielberg's great team. Kathleen Kennedy producing, Michael Kahn editing. Oh, it's just fantastic. But, you know, I got to hand it to the Academy for, for giving it that many nominations despite the reception that it had. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, 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 I think. Yeah. Uh, never mind. <laughs> well, we always talk. We talk too about the fact that how, the, how fond the Academy is of uh, movies about uh, um, Nazis and the Holocaust and movies like that really strike a chord with a lot of the older um, members of the Academy. Not even older, but even younger movies who have uh, a Jewish heritage. Right. And this movie was really a little bit. Munich was uh, ambivalent about. The, yes, um, the, the, the behavior of of, uh, of, um, of Israel, right? Yeah. Exactly. And but if you're going to be ambivalent about Israel, that again is not a ticket to the Oscars. Yeah. It, it even had the nerve. There's that scene where where the uh, where the the Jewish hitmen end up in the same safe house with the Palestinian hitmen, and they mm-hmm. don't tell the Palestinians that they're Jewish, but. The Palestinians are given, you know, 15, 20 minutes to sort of air their grievances on film. And right. that's something that that that's almost heresy to, to be able to, to to actually do that. But that was just Spielberg being even handed and showing that, you know, there's two sides to the story. You don't have to you don't have to approve of what happened at Munich in order to understand that that there there's there's plenty of shit going bad on both sides. Mm-hmm. And and but people don't want to hear that. People, especially nine eleven, didn't want to hear that. No. They wanted everything to be black and white, good versus evil. George Bush with his cowboy hat riding in and kicking ass on all the brown people in foreign countries. That's what <laughs> we wanted. And Munich was not going to be that movie. I have a feeling that history is going to be kind to it, though. That it's going to resonate pretty well. I don't see that movie being, you know, running out of steam. Anytime soon. I think it's only going to get rediscovered and talked about and, and pulled back out and rewatched as one of Spielberg's best, for sure. And you know, I I'm would a agree. Fan. I love Spielberg, of course. And, you know, it's, I, I just want to point out quickly, I don't really want to spend any much time talking about it, but this is another year where he did two movies, and both of them are terrific. Not, not a lot of people dig War of the Worlds. It's a sci fi. Crowd, not really a crowd pleaser because it's also one of the darkest movies he's ever done and it got a lot of shit for sort of using 9-11 imagery in terms mm-hmm. of trying to scare people but you know, the crowd's think, panicking mm-hmm. yeah but I think that was important too it was I think it's important to deal with those feelings and I think he was honestly trying to do that and he made an extremely entertaining picture in the process to me yeah and they're both kind of weird apocalyptic not apocalyptic but dark movies about that time yeah. So if anybody ever, some smart professor ever pulls together some movies about that really evoke 9-11 and the mood of the country, um, that he might pull out those two films, you know. Um, speaking of war-torn countries, so, I mean, if we're going to go through, let's go through all the best pictures first and then we'll move on to the ones that were nominated for best picture. Because this is one of those years where there are so many great movies that this is a year that could have had nine easily. Mm-hmm. You know, for right. Best Picture, really e- easily. Constant Gardner would have gotten in there. 
um, history of violence might have gotten in there. You know, this is too extra. Walk the line, maybe. Walk the line for sure. That was another one that was set up. That's that's sort of known as the movie that that really died in in um, Toronto because it was being hailed as a big big Oscar player. And right around Toronto, it just it just hit the skids. And nobody could ever really explain why, but for a while there, it seemed like, oh, if you want to kill your movie, take it to, to Toronto. <laughs> you know, the she kiss ended, of death. Yeah, she ended up winning Best best Actress, of course. But um, Let's talk about Brokeback. We all loved it, yeah. right? And then I, I want to talk about Capote next, yeah. Um, Brokeback Mountain, Craig, I think you're the only one that's watched it recently. Um, I, watched I don't it know. You've, you've, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, I wasn't trying to, to cockblock you on it or anything like that. Go ahead, please. I mean, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Um, you know, even if you uh, even if you take out the, 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 the gay context to it, it's still just a beautiful, sad, tragic love story. And it's hard for me not to understand how any human being can't watch it and be moved by it. You know, it just it, it makes me a little sad that people dig in their heels because it's two men and not a man and a woman. It's just weird. But it's um, it, 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 it still holds up really, really well. And, and the performances are amazing. Made me sad watching Heath Ledger and he's marvelous in it. I think Jake Gyllenhaal's a little bit underrated because he's a really important counterpoint to to um, Heath Ledger's performance. But. Just a, uh, another beautiful Ang Lee movie. The dude just can't make a movie without without really moving people, I think. Yeah. I'm going to tell you this one time, Jack, fucking twist. And I ain't fooling. What I don't know, all them things that I don't know, would get you killed if I come to know them. Yeah, we'll try this one. And I'll say it just once. Go ahead. Tell you what, we could have had a good life together. Fucking real good life. Had us a place of our own. But you didn't want it, Ennis. So what we got now is Brokeback Mountain. Everything's built on that. That's all we got, boy. Fucking all. So I hope you know that if you don't never know the rest. You count the damn few times that we have been together in nearly 20 years, and you measure the short fucking leash you keep me on, and then you ask me about Mexico, and you tell me you kill me for needing something I don't hardly never get. You have no idea how bad it gets. And I'm not you. I can't make it on a couple of high-altitude fucks once or twice a year. You are too much for me, Ennis. You sound a horse and a bitch. I wish I knew how to quit you. Then why don't you... Why don't you just let me be, huh? Because of you, Jack, that I'm like this. Nothing. I'm nowhere. Get the fuck off me! Sorry. It's alright. Damn you, Kim. I just can't stand like this anymore, Jack. 
He's amazing. And actually, Ang Lee is now in the place that John Ford was right before John Ford won um, How How Green Was My Valley and John Ford won Best Picture, Best Director, beating Citizen Kane. But it's worth noting that at that time, John Ford had won two Best Director Oscars without winning Best Picture. And that's where mm-hmm. Ang Lee is sitting right now with um, having won for Brokeback and then again for Life of Pi. My God, when <laughs> he's so brilliant, it's like... But he made Brokeback Mountain and then made Life of Pi and then <laughs> made Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon too. Like he's just insane. But I think um, that the, it's great that the Academy um, honored him. They gave him the Best Director Oscar. I mean, props to them for that. They deserve such credit for that. And I believe that his that you can't look at that movie and not see the delicacy and the sophistication that he um, used when he made that movie. Also, to realize. Uh, to look at his the, the the his career path and to see the versatility that he has, we we always talk about how we um, how much we value and how much we're impressed by actors who who can slip into so many different characters and accents and things like that. We really admire versatility in actors, but it, it seems like when it comes to directors, we're looking for them to always do the same thing over and over they have a directors have a certain type of movie that they're supposed to be specialized in right and ang lee doesn't ang lee doesn't do that he 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 does a different type of movie every time but they all have these recurrent themes that run through them and it occurred to me when i watched broke back um, this past week that one of the themes in all of his movies is that he has these characters these individuals who are um have their have an individual problem and they're trying to find a place in society a society that is restrictive and 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 repressive and they're trying to find their it's an individual's um quest to find a place for himself in a restrictive mm. society and they have it's recurring over and over in all of his movies even i would even say even in the hulk the hulk mm-hmm. even fits it fits into that you know a guy who's just really he doesn't fit in and he's trying to figure out how he can fit in mm. That most definitely was the angle that probably appealed to him about that movie in the first place. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you, I think you're you mentioned right, that. Yeah. He, he, uh, outside of thematically, if I didn't know that all of those movies were directed by Ang Lee, I don't know that I would, I would confidently say, yeah, they were all directed by the same guy. Because like you said, stylistically, they're all so... And, and even genre-wise, they're all so completely different. Yeah, mm-hmm. sorry, he adapts his style so much to his subject matter, and very few directors do that. They all leave their directorial fingerprints on their movies, which I like that. Ordinarily, I don't have anything against that, and I like to see directors with a with a distinctive style that you can recognize instantly. That this is a this is a director by Paul Thomas Anderson, for instance, or whatever you know. But but if you didn't see the credits for Ang Lee's movies, it would be really hard to guess that he directed all of them. Sorry about that phone interrupting you while you were speaking. I didn't even hear it. I didn't mm. hear it. Didn't, didn't hear it. Um, yeah, that's true about him. He is really he invests himself a hundred percent with. Um, I think someday you might be able to go back and see some similarities, perhaps. But it is. It's tough. That's a tough one. One thing about Brokeback Mountain that I was always surprised about was that it didn't win cinematography, or if it wasn't going to win, why the New World didn't. But also even more surprising is that History of Violence, which I thought had incredibly good cinematography, and Munich both weren't nominated for cinematography. But it was a tough and very competitive year in cinematography because you had The New World, Good Night, Good Luck, Brokeback Mountain, um, Memoirs of a Geisha, which won, and Batman Begins. We've talked before about how a lot of times uh, voters who 
possibly don't know a whole lot about the art of cinematography will often vote for the movie that is the most like a postcard. It's like a pretty postcard movie, and Memoirs of a Geisha is, of all the movies that were nominated, it, it definitely fits that description best. It's just beautiful to look at. You could frame you could you could frame and hang on the wall any still from that movie, right? Oh, no, it's, it's just so beautiful to look at. Oh, they, they all are. They're just insane. And, and Dion Beebe's no hack. I mean, I've been, right. I've been really botched last week talking about Collateral because I, I respect and admire Collateral so much. But he did such fantastic camera work in Collateral. So right. two years in a row, he was just on a on he was just yeah, in a, on a roll. He was the um, peak of his career. You know, the one thing I I can say about Ang Lee's films, even though you could have to take the ice storm out of this probably and maybe lust caution. Um, maybe a couple of others, but the one thing he he always has, and I know, and he actually has this in person too. Like, lest we forget that I burst into tears upon meeting on <laughs> like, but um, he's just a really emotional person, and he's not ashamed of emotion, and he doesn't hide. So you have these really, even though he's known for being kind of stoic and sort of poker faced um, on the set, people talk about like Emma Thompson talked about that in Sense of Sense and Sensibility, Brokeback Mountain. Um, Crouching Tiger, Life of Pi. These are all like revelatory, um, you know, emotionally um, uh, climactic films, all of them. The characters have catharsis in all of them, and they it just they grab your heart, you know. They really do. They're mm-hmm. so moving. And Brokeback is absolutely no exception to that. It's especially the end, you know, the end scene with, with Heath Ledger, um, you know, with the shirt. I mean, it's it's the famous scene, but... I don't know how you can watch that scene without sobbing. You know, it's like you know. Interesting thing about that last scene, um, the the short story that um, Annie Pruel wrote um, ends with um, um, Ennis in in uh, in Jack Twist's room at his house. He finds in those two shirts in the closet, and the movie ends there. In the in the movie, um, Diana, Diana Osasana and uh, Larry McMurtry added another scene where he brings the shirts downstairs and the, he no, motions to the mother that he's taking the shirts. She gives him a, a paper bag to put them in so he can kind of sneak them out of the house so the father doesn't notice. And he brings them back home with him. And he and, and when he finds the shirts in in Jack's room, Jack's shirt is over the top of Ennis's shirt. Jack's mm. shirt is embracing. Uh, Ennis's shirt in the last scene um, is reversed. Ennis has taken his shirt to make it embrace Jack's shirt. Mm. And and Diana Osasana said that was Heath Ledger's idea. That oh. it was written, it wasn't written that way, but it, it, when they were filming, he said, let's put my shirt over the top of Jack's. And she said that's when he realized, that's when she realized that he understood Jack's character even better than she did. Oh, wow. I really feel like it's a master class in acting watching those two guys. And the women are good too, the supporting players, but Oh yeah. Uh I mean they're great, right? Um, I didn't have any idea who Michelle Williams or Anne Hathaway were at the time because yeah. I, they, I they had just flown under my radar. I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of them and they were both fantastic. Yeah. That's a very difficult roles for both of them. Mm. I would argue that even Ice Storm and Lust Caution deal heavily with emotion, although in the Ice Storm it's more specifically emotional repression, but the emotions are still there. They're just contained under the surface, and I think that's that's one thing that I think Ang Lee does so well with emotions, and maybe why he why more of his films haven't been driven home to best picture because he's so gentle and subtle in his treatment of emotions. He never overplays it. Like Spielberg, Mm. much as I love him, he does have a tendency to go a little too far 
sometimes with some of the more heightened emotions of his scenes. But but Ang Lee kind of downplays it. I mean, that whole final scene that you were just talking about plays out without words, and it's just movements and expressions. And he's not he's not taking a highlighter pen saying, okay, here's the part where you're supposed to cry, but you do anyway, because you, you, you're so absorbed in it, but it's just such a non direct attention getty way of making a point. And I think maybe that's why some of, sometimes his movies aren't, aren't as much embraced as they should be. Well, it's interesting what you have said and what Sasha said, they can be combined in, in, in a way to kind of sum up what Ang Lee, Ang Lee does with emotion in his movies. He, and I think the reason he chooses the material that he chooses, he's drawn to the, to the topics of the movies that he makes are because he, ha- he deals with characters who have, to repress their emotions and who have a stoicism. Sasha, you mentioned he was stoic. Mm-hmm. And all of the characters, um, they, they sort of have to keep their emotions in reserve, right? Yes, exactly. And it's, that's very much the that's case right. in Lust Caution and in The Ice Storm and in, uh, definitely in Hulk, right? He has to keep his emotions in check. Right. And in, in uh, Brokeback Mountain, all of these movies, um, he has these um, characters who have to really keep their emotions in check. They have to have, a, there's a stoicism and a dignity and majesty almost about the way that they carry their emotions that's so true that's really true that that is a a definite thumbprint of the kind of films he chooses and the way he directs actors in terms of um um impact i just want to say that i don't think that crash winning had any particular impact upon hollywood and, and its treatment of of minorities but i do think that Brokeback losing had enormous impact on how the gay community responded to that and, and how they kind of took action in a way to combat it. And, and the same way that I thought that 12 Years a Slave was not so much a film about slavery but about Hollywood's depiction of slavery and that it was a movie really about Hollywood itself, I felt that way about Brokeback too is that it in a way it's it's sort of commenting on the western it's commenting on the kind of homophobic nature of hollywood in that actors couldn't come out and mm-hmm. be gay and still work actors and films are almost always about exclusively about straight um characters and they didn't really have only a few i, I think uh a tiny handful of, of characters about, you know, films about gay characters have even gone in the best picture race at all. I know Midnight Cowboys are really, you know, really big one, but, um, but nonetheless, I do think that the Brokeback Mountain ended up opening a lot of doors and changing a lot of minds. And, and look now we have Ellen Page coming out, Jodie Foster coming out. I mean, things are changing so much in the gay community. It's almost like you can't really justify being in the closet being somebody who has to pretend and lead a double life just like these characters do in this movie which to me it just really depicted what it must have been like to be a gay actor in hollywood for the last however many decades you know and i think really... too it um even though we only have anecdotal evidence about how people responded to the movie we can't say that it was necessarily widespread we can imagine that it was but we can't ever say for sure but it exposed a latent uh, underlying homophobia in Hollywood that I think a lot of reasonable people probably didn't expect was there because Hollywood always has this rap of being this bastion of of liberality and yet here was this vein of hate against an entire group of people that I think it surprised me to see that it was there and I think I would imagine that it surprised a lot of people and I think I would imagine it go ahead 
No, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I, to me, by exposing something is always the, the first step towards stamping it out. And by shining a light on this homophobia, I think has, has like Sasha was saying, has helped helped combat it over the years since then. And what another thing that's really ironic and, and really sad and depressing, it must have been a shock as well to gay members of the Academy, who we know must be um, numerous. Yeah. And we know that the, num- the number of people in, in Hollywood um, uh, on, in every craft, in every, in, every, in every category, in every branch of the Academy, there are gay people. And so it must have been a really stunning, hurtful shock to them to see that people were not only... Um, Speaking out against Brokeback, but actually, t- actually acting like that they were boasting about uh, th- that they were repelled by it. Yeah, that there was right. repulsion there. That yeah. would, how awful would that feel to be to have witnessed that, to see that around you among your peers? Mm-hmm. And, and so then, I think that really not only did it help um, cha- make a change in the way that that gay people are regarded uh, in America, but I think it also helped in Hollywood and it helped in the Academy because just two or three years later, then Milk um, um, won Best Screenplay and Best Actor. And, and it, well, even in the same year, Capote, um, we can talk about that. Someone, um, our, our reader Al on the site asked, why is it do we think that, do we think that uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman won for Capote for playing a gay character, whereas Heath Ledger was overlooked? For playing a gay character. That's interesting. Well, first of all, nobody was going to beat uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman that year. Nobody, no matter how good they were. He was mm. a juggernaut. He was one of those Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln kind of performances. I mean, you can go back and look. at the, He won everything, everything, everything. And Forrest Whitaker in um, Last King of Scotland was the same yeah, way, right? Right. Yeah. It's one of those that just start, they start out winning uh, Helen Mirren, the queen. You know, you just, mm. you can't, they're unequivocal. You can't. There's nothing you can do, no matter how good. And Heath Ledger would have given him a good was was, and they're both dead. Oh God! But, um, but the the thing about Hoffman, as I think, partly is because he never kissed men in the film. He never had anal sex with anybody. Right. So mm-hmm. his homosexuality wasn't put into people's faces in a way that is going to make people who have a problem with that uncomfortable. He was kind of the cute, lovable quirky gay character you know and, and and for years we've had those characters on sitcoms and th- that's always acceptable yeah. but to deal honestly with gay sexuality as it was repeatedly in brokeback mountain is just a place that that a lot of people don't want to go and also you- um the, i just have to yeah because capote's you know one of my favorite films but ba- because it's based on my favorite book of all time which is um in cold blood by truman capote and the thing is you can't put you can't really separate um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman from Truman Capote. Truman Capote was already so beloved, his character so permanent in in Hollywood and in and kind of the socialite scene in New York. He was the permanent fixture. Uh, everybody knew him at parties. He charmed everybody. They knew he was he was openly gay. Actually, Truman Capote was. He was very much out and proud. He did not hide that at all. But. Um, so it wasn't a big shock to, to you know, everybody knew that when someone made a movie about Truman Capote, it was going to be a movie about a gay, a gay man because that was part of his identity. I mean, I strongly urge anyone to read In Cold Blood and anything you can get your hands on that Truman Capote wrote. I do think he's America's finest writer, right up there with his best friend who wrote um, To Kill a Mockingbird, um, Harper Lee. The two of them are like they just they just kill as writers. They're just incredible, and um, 
Okay, go ahead, Ryan, and then I'll talk about In Cold Blood, the story. I forgot what I was going to say exactly. Oh, except sorry. I will say, uh, we'll talk about the first time that I saw Brokeback Mountain. I was so surprised. Is I saw it in a small southern town, and I show up at the theater, and I was not a, the least bit, I did not even have any concern in my mind about um, standing in the box office and buying a ticket for Brokeback Mountain, although I couldn't get anybody to go see it with me. Even my gay friends, I couldn't get them to go see it with me. They were just afraid that yeah. they would, how it would look, you know, to be, to be here's these gay guys that are going to see Brokeback Mountain, yeah. how, you know, how predictable, right? right? But when I went to see it, I was amazed to see that the majority of the audience, and I'm talking like a vast majority, like 90 or 95 percent of the audience were women. Were all the women who loved that movie so much, you know, and they were not they went they were showing up in 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 couples and in groups. Groups of women were going to see this movie. Sure. Well, women are allowed to feel emotion, you know. I mean, it's kind of sad that you're so right about that. Like part of Brokeback's problem was that stigma of people not wanting to go see it and being too embarrassed. Like, you know, mm-hmm. feeling defensive that they're going to buy tickets to, oh, they're going to think I'm gay, you know? Right, <laughs> exactly. It was the gay cowboy movie. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. and even, even like a girl who might want to try to talk her boyfriend into going to see Brokeback Mountain. Can you imagine the argument that night on yeah. date night? You know, trying a girl trying to talk her boyfriend into seeing uh, the gay movie. He's just right. not going to want to do that, right? It's and one of so, the internet memes of all for all time, Brokeback, and it's also, um, you know, often a, a, a joke, you know, like a broke. Brokeback Mountain is sort of like a way to tease people about, you know, what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, like they say, and there were so many jokes that year. I remember all of the talk shows were doing so many Brokeback jokes every single night. Even Letterman, who I respect a lot. Although, you know, none of the jokes about Brokeback, that used Brokeback Mountain as a, as, a, as a premise were really making a joke about the movie. A lot of times they were making a joke about homophobes. Nervousness, yeah. You know? Nervousness around yeah. gay sex. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so Capote, uh, I, I'm not passing over Brokeback. It's, I think it was the film that deserved to win absolutely far and away the best of the five. But um, And in, in history, in terms of what kind of movie should win Best Picture, as in it's an important film, it makes a difference, it's exceptional in every way. Um, uh, this, to me, it just it had it all. I think all the other movies, you know, were great too. But... Um, it got 17 perfect scores of 100 on Metacritic. Uh, it had a total Metacritic score of 87. In contrast, um, Crash had four four scores of 100 on right. Metacritic. I know. So it was a shocker. It, it was, it was a more, sure. much more, and, it had, and Crash's Metacritic score was 69. That's really pretty low for a Best Picture uh, winner. It's one of 69. the lowest. I think Chicago might be a little bit lower, but yeah, Crash is very low. Um, yeah, no, I know. All the other movies in this lineup had better Metacritic scores, and, and a lot of them that didn't get nominated had better Metacritic scores than Crash. So that's why it was surprising. It was surprising because no one thought it would win, and many people did not want it to win. Not as in they didn't want it to win. They just were like, huh, really? What is your impression of Oscar night when Jack Nicholson opened the envelope? I, I got, I, every time I see that, I get the distinct impression that there's a certain amount of glee in his voice when he announces that Crash won, as if, yeah, we defeated the gay movie. And that really has oh, no, colored my opinion of Jack Nicholson ever since then. I've never gotten that. In fact, we all really? joke about the fact that he was, like, as shocked as everybody else and, like, was sort of embarrassed. That's, that was the read that okay. night, was that yeah, they that, were just like... I, I wondered. That's why I asked. I wondered we if We still do else, that. Uh, Chris Tapley and I will sometimes just read out the titles of movies the way that the people who read them want read them that night like um mm-hmm. sean connery reading tartanic <laughs> mm-hmm. or uh jack nicholson going crash it was sort of like crash it was kind of like 
He just did not. It wasn't an enthusiastic. I'll have to watch it again. I guess by that time of that evening, I was just I was discouraged so much. I was discouraged in the first place that Munich wasn't winning anything at all. The music Munich was getting shut out, and I was also I could feel the tide turning against against Brokeback when when for instance Crash won Best Editing and stuff because I knew what that meant. You know, I knew. Well, yeah, I knew and where probably the, Jack Nicholson is really in with that crowd. He's probably because he's an actor, so he's in with the actory crowd, and the actory crowd right. was all about Crash that year. But can mm-hmm. we talk about Capote, please? Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I love the movie so, so much, and it's great because Bennett Miller is uh, a force to be reckoned with this year, oh right? Oh my God, yeah. And and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman had been doing a lot of smaller parts, but he hadn't really gotten the lead. He just dove right into that, and he mastered that performance. In fact, if you go and you can find Truman Capote speaking on YouTube, and you'll see how he nailed it. But what's remarkable about that? movie is in, just that it isn't just about Capote. It's called Capote. But it's really about Capote and In Cold Blood specifically. It's not about Capote's sad, horrible, sad life growing up as a, an abandoned you know, boy in the South. You know. Right. It's not a biopic. By no, any means. His, but you could make a biopic about him. It's that interesting. Actually, um, huh. To Kill a Mockingbird is a lot about their lives and that little kid in To Kill a Mockingbird, who, who's that obnoxious neighbor kid that keeps coming over, the boy. Yeah. That's based on Truman Capote. So he was uh, always a little loudmouth kid, and um, mm-hmm. they were best friends since they were since they were children. And Harper Lee's in the movie, and he is a little bit weird with her because she wrote a, one book that was you know that that was huge that that you know one of the greatest American novels of all time. And he was, you know, he was the one who really wanted to be um, the center of attention. And, and, and the movie is so great because it really captures that vanity um, that he had and his his kind of love-hate relationship with her. There's a great scene of them on the train, and he's with Harper Lee. And the, the guy who works on the train comes in and he says, he says, oh, by the way, Mr. Capote, I love your latest book. <laughs> and then he says, thank you, thank you. And he leaves, and Harper Lee looks at him and goes... You paid him to say that, didn't you? Right. <laughs> I love his response to that. Instead of denying it, he's like, was it that obvious? And he just starts cracking up. He's like totally, he's, he's a total egomaniac, but he's completely comfortable with who he is. Yeah, and mm-hmm. the one interesting thing about him, if you're an In Cold Blood fan and you've read that book, which is, I'll say it again, to me, the best book ever written, just in American literature, of course. I say that as someone who hasn't read every book ever written, but <laughs> I think it's a fantastic book. But it really zeroes in on that particular relationship he had with Perry. Perry is the, you know, Dick and Perry are the two guys who went to the clutter house in the middle of the night and tied them up and murdered them. Actually, Dick is the one who, no, Perry is the one who, who murdered them. And but, but the thing about the movie and the thing about the book is, is specifically Truman Capote's inappropriate, very intense relationship with Perry and how he feels so sorry for him and how he really just spends all of this time and, and be, really becomes too emotionally attached to this guy. And the thing is, the great thing about the movie and the book is that Perry is all of these things until he isn't. And when he isn't, when he's a monster, and when that truth comes out... You know, Capote has no choice but to just walk away. And so it's about writing a great book, getting too close to a subject, but not giving up on the great book, you know, because this relationship is destructive, but staying with it like a good journalist and a good writer and delivering one of these absolutely masterful works 
And inventing a genre, a the genre he created that had never even existed before, the nonfiction novel. Yeah. No one had ever written a book like that ever before. And then now it's like a, uh, an industry into itself, all of these true crime novels. All that these was true his crime, idea, yeah. He wanted, to write the, he wanted to write it like a novel. And mm-hmm. he delivered it um, as, as a part, you know, several series uh, of articles in the, in the New Yorker. And people mm-hmm. read them and they were just, oh, my God, mesmerized, as you can imagine. And thing about him is he was a terrible alcoholic, you know, and a, and a raconteur. And he loved um, society ladies. And he would squire them around town and, and wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's, in fact, about, about the, those women. Mm-hmm. And he was also a terrible procrastinator too, which uh, uh, any writer can identify with that. Um, and uh, it's a, it's really a shame that um, really after in cold blood, uh, he, his career peaked, and he never really achieved anything near that quality after that. He never wrote another novel after that. Yeah, and he had he had so many unfinished works that he was working on, and but they never came together. Yeah. One of the things I liked about it is that, um, unlike so many biographies, it is, like Sasha said, it wasn't really, it wasn't just about him, but also to the extent that it was about him, it never candy coated his personality. He was a difficult, mm. challenging person. There's so often in the film, it's appalling to see how he keeps wanting to turn the story of this murder and turned it around so that it's sort of about him. He wants to be the, sort of the hero of this story. And you get the sense almost in the end when Perry is finally killed that he's, he's less, he's less sad about a man being killed than he is about his part of the story ending. You know, it, it, yeah. it, it, it it's a little disturbing and yet that's what it took to go into creating this wonderful book that he wrote. And in the book, he, you know, he, he, there's this tension between is Perry going to stay alive long enough for him to get the end of the story? Right. And you never really know. And they, they do it beautifully in the movie. You never really know if he's really emotionally attached or if he's faking it, if this is just a, and I think, I think there's a line in the movie actually, and, and in the book that, that Perry like corrects him on something or tries to, you know, correct him. Cause Perry, in his own way, was really, really smart. He wasn't educated, but he was very talented. He was a talented artist, and he, he really did... He was a lot smarter than, than you would think. Strange guy, Perry, by the way. Chilling. But um, he corrects Truman Capote, and, 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 and Truman Capote, like, pulls back for a minute and just sort of says to him, you know, like, don't even try, you know? about Ricardo. We got all the time in the world to talk. I've been thinking about Ricardo. You really need to stop sending those trashy books. I won't even mention the pornography. Now, I realize that Dick probably can't grasp the literature that you gave me. On the books you sent him only, they only exacerbate the problem. They only heighten or intensify it. Maybe we can get them started on the program. I know what exacerbate means. Okay, well. There's not a word or a sentence or a concept that you can illuminate for me. There is one singular reason I keep coming here. Truman. November 14th, 1959. Three years ago. Three years. Hmm? That's, That's all I want to hear from you. I asked you not to. Ever. Hmm? This is absurd. Do you know what absurd means? 
I'm ready. I have a plane to catch. I found your sister in Tacoma. Maybe she'll talk to me about something useful. Please don't go out there. Hey, this is my work, Perry. I'm working. And when you want to tell me what I need to hear, you let me know. But that's the first time that you see that there's this, there is this dis- distance, that this, this forced distance. So on the one hand, he is getting too emotionally attached. But on the other hand, you know that it is all to service. Right. There's the, and there's that fin- the final line of the film is him talking to Harper Lee on the phone. And he sort of expresses regret that he was unable to do anything to save Perry. And she's kind of like, well, you didn't even really try. Yeah. And that, and that was it. That's the last line of the film. And she's the one. She's really the only person who ever spoke the truth to him. Like, they were really, that's the kind of relationship that they had. There wasn't much he could really do. I mean, that case was, you know. No, there wasn't. And really, he got the ending for his book that he needed, and which makes it even a little bit more uncomfortable, knowing that that he was watching it unfold and knowing that that, the pieces had to fall into place in order for him to have the ending to his book. And until they did, and until they did in that particular way, the, the the book would not have been nearly that uh, had that much impact right but he was able to put that ending off long enough mm-hmm. for him to get perry's confession which is what he really really wanted before he checked out of this mortal coil and he mm-hmm. got it because i think as i recall um it it dick was the one who was taking the blame for the murders and not perry and Truman Capote had to get Perry to admit that he's the one that did it. He's the one that yeah. killed everybody in that house. Mm-hmm. Creepy thing about that story is that the reason they went in there, I don't think this is covered in the movie, actually. The reason they went in there is because um, Dick had a thing for prepubescent girls, and he heard that there was a teenage girl in the house. Wow. Yeah, wow. that's not covered in the movie. In the movie, his justification is always that they'd heard that there was $10,000 yeah. in the house. But in the book, mm-hmm. he talks about that, how he had... had He'd gotten busted for and attempted to rape, you know, young, very young girls. And he had heard that the the Nancy Clutter or one of the the Clutter daughter was in the house. And that's what that's why it's such a weird story, because nobody could figure out why they were there. Like, yes, they had heard a loose story about the safe um, being there in the Clutter house. Some guy had told him that he worked there and he knew that the old man had money hidden away which of course he did not have but all the same nothing about it made sense nothing about it. the cops could not figure out how these how these why these this clutter family was murdered in the way that they were murdered for what reason there was nothing that they took they got nothing out of it like i think they got like a watch or something 50 bucks 50 bucks and a watch and but the, but that's a scary thing about it is that you know Truman Capote does eventually find out about that about Dick, and that that explains a lot. And and Perry had a thing for Dick, and he was like kind of weird, weird and jealous. Actually, Perry was protective of the girl, and that's one of the reasons why. I mean, he he stopped Dick from wanting to rape the girl, and in his weird, twisted mind, murdering them was a way out of that somehow. That that part made it into the movie. He did as part of his story. He did say that uh, Dick was going upstairs to have his way with with Nancy and that but that he stopped him. Right, he stopped him. Yeah, he did. He did stop him, but then he proceeded to kill everybody else in the house. <laughs> 
Can we talk a little bit about uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and his performance? Um, when we were talking about Ray last week, Ryan singled out Jamie Foxx for a, a great performance as a recognizable character. And I think Philip Seymour Hoffman it, it had an even harder task because Capote is such a recognizable, unique person, just the way he talks and the way he carries himself. And to see how perfectly... Hoffman nailed that mm. even though he doesn't necessarily look exactly like him he perfectly captured the voice and the mannerisms and the tone and once again he does it without just relying on mimicry he's he's creating a fully fleshed out psychological character at oh the my same time God, I know it is one of the most brilliant performances I kept watching it trying to look for a weakness you know I was looking watching thinking Sooner or later, I'm going to see some slip up. You know, I'm going to see some Philip Seymour Hoffman shining through, and I'm not going to see Truman Capote anymore. But from the way he holds his cigarette to the way he laughs, I mean, he really got Truman Capote's laugh. Mm-hmm. Is one of the specific things he does that's so great, and and the way and his expressions. Dresses. Yeah, and the way he dresses, the way he stands. I mean, it really is. Bennett Miller must have just been so out of his mind happy that he had this actor working with him. Truman Capote was a really small in stature too. I think he was like only five two or yeah. something like that. And uh, Seymour, Philip Seymour Hoffman is normal height guy. He's like five ten or five eleven. But he, you don't you don't you don't you don't see him as big guy in that movie at all. He he, said, he does something with his body language to shrink himself. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, in, in contrast to who, who's the guy who played Capote in Infamous? Toby um, Jones. Toby Jones. Yeah, he is a small guy, and so they, he's stature wise, he he more fits the 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 um, the person he's playing. Yeah. But but um, poor Toby Jones, man. First he his first big breakout was as Capote after Philip Seymour Hoffman already knocked it out of the park, and then just last year, the year before, he does Hitchcock on HBO after after uh, yeah, what's his name had already done it. <laughs> in, in cinemas, the, the dude can't catch a break. Right. right, but you know what he didn't capture about Capote that Philip Seymour Hoffman did was his kind of effervescence, effervescence and his charisma, and that's something that I didn't see a lot of in the old Truman Capote impersonations, which you sometimes see on old '40s cartoons or something, '50s cartoons. Mm-hmm. A Truman Capote character will come on, and it's like I'm Truman Capote or whatever. <laughs> like I knew who Truman Capote was from cartoons when I was a little kid. Before I knew who Truman Capote was, like I just knew the name because he was always on as a kind of a, a lampooned character, but in a nice, like you know, in a, an affectionate right. way. But but his charisma really didn't shine through, except when Philip Seymour Hoffman played him, and he really captured that. That was the great thing about the movie is I think it starts with a cocktail party scene, and he's just kind of standing around with his cigarette, um, recounting all of these really funny stories. And even though he's got a weird voice and a weird manner, everybody's around him, and they're just captivated by everything he's saying. He's just like a master mm. Like you said before, a raconteur, just a just a perfect storyteller, and just so, even though he's odd, he's he you can't not listen to what he's saying. That's the funny thing about him is he didn't seem to care. He noticed that people thought he was weird and odd, but it didn't bother. He thrived him. on it. He just kept going, you know. <laughs> he thrived on it. Also, I think when you're when you have that sort of personality and that sort of characteristic about yourself what a chore it would be to try to disguise that and hide it. Yeah. When you've got that voice and you've got those mannerisms, 
either you ride with it and roll with it and play it up and 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 go full bore with it, or you try to disguise it and everyone sees right through it. Mm. You know, everyone's going to see through it if he tried to act like he wasn't so gay, right? Mm. That's what was so interesting about the screenplay that 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 the, the book was unable to do, but the screenplay did so masterfully. The characters, um, the people that they met in the um, the small town when he goes to to research the story, like Chris Cooper, who has a very um, anti-gay attitude at first, and he he is also charmed by Truman Capote as 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 he gets to know him more and more. And so the audience kind of the audience who might feel uncomfortable around a flamboyant gay person like that can identify and see him through Chris Cooper's eyes, and 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 right. understand where the charm is coming from. Absolutely, that's a really. Um, Obviously intentional strategy by the filmmakers and very important because it brings in a whole segment of the audience who might resist that character a little bit. But to see the stoic, you know, straight-laced Chris Cooper character finally warming up to him, Mm. it kind of wins everybody else over. Then, mm-hmm. then, um, Futterman wrote the screenplay. He's an actor. Yeah. He hasn't written very many other screenplays, I don't think. He's you mainly see him as an actor. Sure, well, he did a great yeah. job. Yeah. He did a great job. Um, so, okay, we're we're using up all our time here, but so we haven't talked about Good Night, Good Luck is the only Best Picture film we haven't talked about, and obviously it goes without saying that this is Clooney's best film for sure, right? I mean, come on, mm-hmm. this is like yes, absolutely. I don't know if he'll ever top it. Yeah, it's a it's a perfect combination of of a good movie, um, and also being an important movie. I mean, it it I think it also sort of ties into the whole post nine eleven thing because it's it's about directly questioning authority and and not taking taking the official word as as the real thing and, and fighting against the people in power. And it, it, if anything, I think news has gone in the opposite direction. It, it capitulated quick, pretty quickly after 9-11 to just being a mouthpiece for the government. And now it's gotten even worse and it's just devolved into being entertainment. It's no longer trying to inform people. It's just trying to entertain them. And that was actually one of the interesting things in the movie makes clear about Edward R. Murrow is that he did both. You know, one week he would interview Liberace and then the next week he would be raking McCarthy over the coals. It was like a, a, a the, the, the velvet glove with the, with the hammer in it or whatever mm-hmm. the hell that metaphor is that I can't think of. But it, it, now the, the news is all about the Liberace interviews and nothing to do with, with taking to task people in authority. Yeah, for sure. And he had a father. His father was a journalist, right? Um, George Clooney's dad. Yeah, he did was. He was a local just... news guy, and he was on AMC for years. You didn't just say that, did you? Did I zone out again? No, you didn't. Okay, good. <laughs> um, yeah, that's. and I think that in a way this movie was kind of like a tribute to his dad, sort of like this idea of what a really good journalist was once. Right. What they once were before they've turned into this total mush pile that they are now, which is an embarrassment, top to bottom. Mm. Um, you know, uh, um, oh, what was I going to say? I'm so sorry. David Strathairn in, in Good Night, Good Luck has the unfortunate, for me in my mind, the unfortunate association as playing the child molester in Dolores Claiborne. <laughs> and he's on the ferry, you know having a little Dolores Claiborne like touch his penis or whatever. It's so hard for me to like get rid of that image of that guy in that movie and see him fresh. Cause he plays all these other great parts. He's, he's in this movie as, as Edward R. Murrow for God's sake, you know, but he'll always, for some reason that performance always bubbles up, but I always see that character. 
That's terrible. That's, that's something you can't unsee. I know. <laughs> so that's why it's so risky for actors to take on that kind of role. And it used to be that the same way that an actor, it was like a kiss of death. Like if Matt Damon, I remember even my mother, I took my mother to see um, Talented Mr. Ripley, and she really liked Matt Damon a lot, but she was so concerned <laughs> after that movie. She was like so worried, well, Matt Damon, he's ruined his career. Aww. She said he's, he's finished because he played a gay person in this movie. Oh, no. That's my mother. She's like, <laughs> that's what I've grown up with. But, but a lot of people, you know, and it is true, a lot of people, it used to be that way. It used, there used to be kind of roles that you would take that would stick with you, and you couldn't shake them throughout your career. Hmm. Not so, even more so on on television. Yeah, wow. It was a great, great movie. Very brilliantly put together. It is is still surreal. I'm sorry. This is the last thing I'm going to say about it, probably for all time, because I am (laughs) sick of talking about it since 2005. I've had enough discussions of Crash and Brokeback Mountain to, 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 you know, finish the rest of my life. But I will just say once again that after talking through all these other movies and to look at the film that eventually won, it's pretty shocking. That yeah, well, that but that, it's not really, you're not making it a battle between Brokeback Mountain and Crash, and I'm glad that we brought this out. It's not just about Crash and Brokeback Mountain. It's about the fact that Crash won instead of three, four, five, six other near-perfect movies. Six, six other movies were just about flawless that year. Yeah, I think you just have to put it down to what the Academy really is and what none of us really want to face about the Academy, certainly not critics, is that it's about actors a lot of the time. And, you know, as I told you, I've, t- I've done acting. I, I, was in, I was in acting for many years, and I know what actors are like. And they're, I mean, not all of them, of course. You can't paint them all with the same brush. But, you know, they like movies about actors, you know, and that's what crashes ensemble piece. When you have a lot of actors in the movie, you have a lot of people voting for that movie. You have a lot of people who are networked in. Of course, that didn't help Lincoln, which was like the biggest on was like the entire SAG. But you know what I think it is about actors, too? I think a lot of actors, especially in the Academy, actors who've been out of work for a long time, actors who haven't played in any movies since the 80s or something or in the 1970s, they look at movies like like Crash and they look at they can see a role and they could say to themselves, I could have done that. I could have been in that movie. But they can't look at Capote and say, I could have played Capote because they know they cannot. (laughs) Capote is also an actor's movie. uh, Capote is the penultimate. Is actually uh, someone, another uh, another reader on the site today said that it's a, a master's cl- a master class in acting. But actors look at a performance like that, and most of them know that they will never be able to do that. Right. But any actor can look at a movie like Crash and say, "I could have been in that movie. Why did my agent get me a role in that movie?" See, you know, so they're attracted that, to movies like that. I would argue that Brokeback, Good Night, Good Luck, and Munich are director-driven films, that not actor-driven. Mm-hmm. Crash, I don't think, is a director-driven film. It's an actor-driven film, and Capote kind of goes both ways. You could say it's both director and actor, because the directorial strain in is very strong, but it's all around that central performance. What it is is it's a showcase. It's an actor's showcase. Mm-hmm. And when you have movies that are just actor showcases, often that actor is the only one that wins. But movies like right. Crash, where they're actor-driven, you know, you're not really thinking so much about the director. You're just thinking about the characters and the actor. Those and that's dangerous. reflected in what the Academy yeah. did that year. They all, they knew too that, that Paul Haggis didn't really. That's, that's why he didn't win. Even though his that's one of the rare one of the rare situations where the director and best picture split. They realized that the director is not that responsible for what they're seeing on screen. Exactly. And we, all three of us, and most of the readers on our site, and all of the film critics, tend to be director driven 
drawn to director-driven films, and that those are our favorites. But the Academy is the exact opposite of that. They tend to be drawn to actor-driven films. It's just the, the way that they, they vote. That's how they roll. Taken me all this time to realize that about them, but looking at this year, it couldn't be more clear to me that that's... Another movie that was actor-driven was Walk the Line, which didn't make it, but Reese Witherspoon won. Um, two of my favorite films uh, of that year were um, uh, History of Violence, which we can talk about, and Grizzly Man, which wasn't even nominated, which remains to this day my favorite documentary and, and has absolutely the best doc- one of the best documentaries that year and should have been nominated and wasn't. Typical Academy, but Grizzly Man is fantastic. It's just the documentary category was a bit of a disaster this year. I mean, mm-hmm. Street Fight, I don't remember Street Fight, but Murder Ball, Enron, and Darwin's Nightmare were all terrific, important documentaries, and they ended up awarding the Cute Penguin movie. Oh, yeah, right, right. That was a disaster. <laughs> Even though I love the Cute Penguin movie, don't get me wrong, I love it, but. Sure, it's fine. It just doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> It doesn't move the needle, you know. It, it's mm. like, okay, yeah, penguins are adorable. We got it. Yeah, they just can't be trusted in that um, category. But um, but Grizzly Man should have been nominated at least. That's a, it's um, just a great Go ahead and talk manager. about... Uh, History of Violence. History of Violence. And I, I before we go, I want to talk about the new world. I'm not going to let you leave until I get to talk about it. Okay. Um, <laughs> History of Violence is... Really stylized. Talk about stylized. Cronenberg is kind of a director of a different time. I mean, I just recorded Scanners. Um, I did that. I just happened to be on TV, so I recorded it. And mm-hmm. a lot of his movies, Crash, another movie by called Crash by Cronenberg and Dead Ringers. And his movies are very, very strange. They don't sit in you know any kind of classification they're they're odd and he likes to work with Vigo you know and this is one of his Vigo Mortensen collaborations and the two of them are great together here Vigo plays a um a mob guy on the run who like pissed off the mob by i guess murdering made guys or something it's based on a graphic novel right Ryan Mm-hmm. It was for sure and definitely so at the time novel. that he at the time that it, that he directed it um Cronenberg had no idea that the script had been based on a graphic novel, and it actually it diverges from the graphic novel in a lot of pretty significant ways. In a lot of ways, yeah. For one thing, the mobsters were Italian in the graphic novel, but but Cronenberg didn't want to do. I think this was a time when Sopranos was big, and he didn't want to do anything that would be anything like the Sopranos. Yeah, some directors really inspire great writing from film critics, and this is one movie that did. If you want to check out some great film reviews, look at the history of violence on Metacritic, and you'll see. Um, Great reviews by Manolo Dargas and Andrew O'Hare, uh, Kenneth Turan. They they loved this movie. The critics did, and and in moments like that, you know, I really appreciate what critics can do and how they can shape a film's legacy by what they write. I hope we don't lose our film critics, and if we're stuck with fanboys as film critics, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. <laughs> but um, they'll never be able to do that. What what these guys did with with History of Violence. Um, it's a really strange movie. Like you can't quite get a handle on it because it's it's at once a story about violence itself, how it runs through this family. Even though it's he tries to bury it and leave it behind, it's still there, very much there. It's about this weird, quiet town where violence pierces the kind of surface, but there is already violence there because the kid, his son, is getting bullied at school. You know. So though they pretend to be kind of a, a perfectly fine, tame American, average American town, 
the diner and, you know, nice, happy white people, there's obviously strains of violence running through it. Um, and, and violence as an extension of masculinity, especially. Yeah. I think that uh, Ebert was um, said something about the, the way that the title of the movie has three different meanings. History of violence can mean the individual history of violence of Vigo's character, his history, his personal history of violence. It can mean the mm. larger American histo- history of violence, the history of violence in America. And it can also mean the history of violence in a Darwinian sense and in, in, in about the survival of the fittest. Mm. That the violence, you have to have a certain amount of violence in order to survive in this world. So there's three different ways the title can be taken. Gotta love that Ebert. Jeez, what a wonderful observation. It's interesting that um, the Maria Bello as the wife, you know, you get the sense that that she likes the rough stuff a little bit and she's actually proud of her husband when he's this hero who saves everybody at the diner. But when she finds out the truth behind him and that he was actually once a murderer, she goes in the exact opposite direction. It's like up to a point she likes the violence, but when she realizes it's a lot deeper than she expected, then... Then, then she's repelled by it. Yeah, and she's scared because her children are threatened twice, you know, early on, and, and then she can't believe that the husband brought this back, dragged it back. And, you know, the ironic thing about it is that they would have just gone on living their lives happily had he not done that shootout in the, ho- in the diner because that's what made him get in the newspaper and that's what brought the mob to him. Mm-hmm. Right. So if he hadn't been the hero, he, that's why it was a, kind of a weird sort of... Um, Kiss of kiss of death. The interesting thing about Vigo's character is how how long he he lies to her. <laughs> it's like, why doesn't he just tell her? You know, it's like he, he keeps saying, "No, no, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me." And finally, she he has no choice but to tell her. You know. And and I think and it's it's concealed from the audience too, if I remember correctly. When I first saw it, I didn't, I wasn't sure for the longest time whether he really was this bad guy or if it was just a case of mistaken identity. Up until the minute where he admits to Ed Harris that yeah, he's the guy right before before Ed Harris is killed. It's like yeah. I, I I wasn't completely sure whether it was going to be him or not. Yeah, and and one of the weird things about the movie is how kind of delicious I, I hate to say this but how sort of delicious the scenes of violence are like they really do make you cut your mouth water in a way like especially with the son when the son is taking on the two bullies in the high mm-hmm. school that particular scene it's like Cronenberg is sort of playing with your own thirst for violence and vengeance and in the way that these guys beat up other guys which is kind of so satisfying but also very graphic and it's not like he's trying to make a movie that makes violence look ugly. It's the exact opposite of that. It's sort of like these orchestrated scenes where the violence is so elegant and choreographed. But he does still man, he does show the, the the harsh consequences of violence too, which is the the flip side of that. He can fetishize violence, he yeah. can make it a fetish, but he can also teach you a lesson about how you can feel for having that fetish and, and the consequences that result from it, the tragedy and the and the the death. You know, he doesn't he doesn't shrink away from that, which is really important, I think. Yeah. He draws you in with your own inherent lust for violence and then sort of punishes you a little bit by going that extra step and making it a little grosser than than what you thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. But you're you're very much still in the uh you're still in the um in the loop. You're still a, a participant in a way because you're a watcher. Mm-hmm. And you you know who also did did this was Hitchcock. Uh-huh. Was very much right. who drew you into that kind of thing and I mean, you really do find yourself wanting the violence that occurs to occur. 
That's the tricky thing about the movie is it sets it up so that you really do want these things to happen. Um, but it's beautifully filmed. The cinematography is incredible, actually. That was Frederick one. Elms, who anybody who's a fan of David Lynch will recognize that name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's. Um, I, I didn't expect watching it again that that was the thing that would stand out to me the most, but it really does. It stands out, other than the sex scenes, of course. <laughs> which and the the f- when I saw it, I, I, I always, always was, uh, I'm always interested in what Cronenberg does, and I was always fascinated by him. But his movies are an acquired taste in a way, some, especially some of his. Early early ones like Scanners and even Dead Ringers and The Fly. I mean, those are not the kind of movies that are ever going to be in play for the Oscar. He was always <laughs> the kind of kind of director who did things that were interesting but were outside the mainstream, so far outside the mainstream, that it was a little bit hard for me to get a handle on them sometimes. And so I went into History of Violence thinking and expecting that it was going to be a little bit of a chore, mm. that it was going to be a duty that I needed to fulfill in order because I like to see all those movies and be aware of them. But I w- was not expecting to get so drawn into it and it's because i think it's one of the few movies one of the first movies maybe the only one that he ever did that has such a strong narrative through line and he did that in the history of violence and um eastern promises also right. where he actually and he does that by attaching his style to to his genre film and right. i think i think that's really interesting when directors do that when they get away from their familiar quirks and wheelhouse in order to do a genre film they can really make something really interesting I just have to say that um, I, I, uh, the scene with Maria Bello and um, Vigo on the stairs when he, you know, she's like, just get away from me or whatever. And he basically um, has, sex, you know, f- forcibly has sex with her in a way that kind of recalls and forces their relationship to come back to the surface from where it's being buried. And nowadays if that movie came out you could hear all the twitterers getting upset the same way they did about game of thrones saying oh it's rape it's condoning rape but it's not really he's not raping her i mean there's it's a very delicate line and i think rape is a different thing i think that when women are being raped and and people in this day and age in this generation they're being taught no is no if a woman says no, says no no matter how she says it it means no, and it means you get the fuck off of her, right? That's what a lot of the younger women think. Um, as a dramatist and as a someone, you know, and, and as an appreciator of film and art, you have to look at it a little bit differently. Who the characters are, what their history is, how the woman is reacting to her husband. I mean, there's, or, or you know, in, this, in the case of Game of Thrones, her brother, right? There's kind of sexual play going on, too. And I agree, it's a fine line. But the sexual play is part of the resistance. And yes, most men probably, if they're meeting a stranger, if it's a first date and it's date rape, they don't know that. Maybe they can't distinguish that. But in a movie where it's a a couple who's been married a long time and their relationship is already very sexual... Um, well, that's the brilliant thing, isn't it? That earlier in the movie, very early in the movie, they have another sex scene where there is actual role play going on, where she's like plays a cheerleader or something, right? Or pretends yeah. to be a cheerleader, mm-hmm. and that's that's and and that's a really it's a really loving, affectionate, intimate, sexual thing that they have. But it's a little bit kinky and rough too. And, and to show a, that they, they already have that established t- in their relationship, yeah. that makes it easier to to accept what happens later, especially when the it's the same situation where. He had to use violence in order to to achieve the closure that he needed to 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 
have against the people who were wanting to cause him harm. He also had to use sexual violence in order to achieve the closure and to get his wife back to where he needed her to be. So there was a purpose for both kinds of violence in the movie. Right, right. I can just hear the people yelling at you for saying that, though. Um, because it's like it sounds like you're, he's that he will have his way. I got in a big argument with my daughter and her and her friend about that stupid. <laughs> BuzzFeed thing or whatever it was about men. I forget what that. Remember that link Craig on Facebook about like what men want from women or something. And and the thing and the thing was the thing in the piece was um, don't use sex as a don't withhold sex as a weapon or be prepared to deal with the consequences. And my niece read that to mean that you better put up put out or you're gonna get it you're gonna get beaten or you're gonna get hit or hurt. And I said that wasn't really what he was saying. What he was saying was. If you do withhold sex as a weapon in a fight, you just might find that the person breaks up with you, leaves you because of that, and is it really worth it? That's really what that guy was saying. I don't believe in withholding sex as a weapon in an argument either. I think it's totally wrong. And women now need to be a little bit more um, empowered, as in they take responsibility for their part in things, you know, like texting a movie star and then flirting with him and then putting that on fucking Twitter or whatever it is. You know, take responsibility for your part in it. You're not 100% free from responsibility, especially if you're of age, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in that case of history of violence, you know, it, to me, it, there's and in Game of Thrones, I'll say also, to me, there was it was absolutely clear that it wasn't a real, it wasn't rape. This wasn't rape going on. There was this was intense sexual play. This was a relationship between two people that cross that line, that, that uh, barrier of communication where the only way you can communicate is by grinding your body together, you know. And the women relent, and they're not screaming and running away, get off me, get off me, get off me, help, 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 you know. It's more about resisting to this person. I, I, it's really, it's a fine line. It's a delicate line. It's something that you know if you've been in relationships with people before, it's really hard Sometimes it's something that you can only know that you've uh, interpreted it and handled it well after the fact. You know, the, the, the way that, the, that both parties feel after an intense, um, forceful sexual situation has a lot to do with what the sexual situation meant. And the fact that it did bring them back together, as you say, it was successful. But it could have just as easily really gone wrong. You know, he could have really found out that that was the that was the final thing that actually drove her away from him or something. You never know until it's over sometimes. And it's such a weird thing anyway, right? Because so many times when women say that they've been raped, men deny it and say, oh, they wanted it, you know. Mm -hmm. So it is a very it's a very delicate Line I don't. Walk. I didn't know about the busting say thing, but I would say it was really badly worded, and I'd have never really understood. I just think the whole concept of using sex as a weapon is bad phrasing. It's more like using sex. It's more like using the withholding of sex as a punishment. It's more yeah, of a exactly. punishment than a weapon. Right, right. It's like this. The, the I think of a weapon as like a tool in some way, and um, but yeah. but I understand how it would make a lot of people hypersensitive well, he's pleading with her i mean if you want to look at rape look at stanley kowalski and blanche dubois on streetcar named desire that's a really right. good depiction of a character raping a character who he pretends he thinks she wants it she doesn't want it he totally rapes her he makes her go insane she ends up in an insane asylum right mm-hmm. he does it because he he can and because he's bigger and stronger than her that's not the case with game of thrones and with history of violence that's not the case that they're using their brute strength to force themselves on a woman even though you could interpret it that way i think that it's it's 
it's kind of a subtle thing, but it's to me kind of clear that it was more about sexual play and their specific relationship. Um, so anyway, it's a weird topic. I, th- I think it's, Im- it's important to be sensitive to this idea of rape, especially since it's not been that long that a lot of people didn't even really think of it as being a real thing. It was just, you know... It, especially it, it, with a married couple. Right, exactly. So it is, it, it's, it's, it's dangerous to kind of to, to chat on that idea. But at the same time, when you're dealing with artists like David Cronenberg, to reduce a scene like that to a simple black and white, yes, it's rape, no, it's not, is to remove the power and the intention of the scene in the first place. I think it is supposed to be dark. It is supposed to challenge your notions of sexuality between a married couple. It is supposed to freak you out a little bit or maybe even turn you on a little bit, depending on which way you roll. But it's supposed to be all of those things, and that's that's the difference between you know art and a speech. He's not he's not making a speech about sexuality, but he's challenging your ideas of it, and that's why he's a great artist and so many other people are just schmucks. And that's what we've said so many, about so many other movies, movies that try to wrap things up and give you an answer, a tidy answer at the end, like Crash, give you make everything tidy with a happy ending and the solution to every problem. Those movies don't linger with me. The movies that stick with me and the movies that mean the most to me and the movies that have the most intense um, uh, aftershocks with me are the movies that make you think. And th- those movies don't answer questions. They just ask questions. They they make you ask questions about yourself, about how you feel about something. And there's no right answer. There's right. really no right answer. There's that great scene in, in um, Unfaithful where um, where Diane Lane is, you know, mad at the guy and she's, like, slapping him or whatever and they end up in the hallway and and he's like, you know, trying to have sex with her, and she keeps pushing him away. But every every like thirty every every third move or whatever, she'll like get into it and she'll kiss him back, and mm-hmm. it ends up becoming a hot sex scene because it is it is also about the woman's struggle to resist this tempt temptation. People always look at it from the male point of view, but when I look at those scenes, Game of Thrones, un, uh, Unfaithful, and uh, history of violence i'm looking at it from the woman's point of view and i'm looking at it as a scene where she's trying to resist him she's trying to resist her desire for him and maybe you can twist that into seeing that as how rapists think maybe they think oh she wants it she's you know just trying to resist me or whatever it's probably true that they do i don't think everybody watching david cronenberg's movies are, are rapists but um, but I do want to note that that we always do look at it from the male point of view. But to me, I think that's very strongly from the female point of view, and that these are very difficult emotions to navigate. Rejecting this kind of sexual being that you desire so strongly. Yeah, I think that's that's that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's <laughs> a, a really good a really good point, and it ties into sort of his ideas on violence. I mean. He's dealing with things that are innately a part of humanity and things that we tend to not want to talk about and things we want to deny and to sort of to, to, to push to the side. But he's, whether it's violence or whether it's sexuality or whether it's a combination of the two, he's, he's challenging you by confronting them head on. That's what I was trying to say earlier when I was trying to say, trying to make an association between the fact, the way that he uses violence in order to achieve necessary essential goals for himself, and he uses the sexual violence in the same way. I was trying to make an association, and I didn't make the link with what Ebert was saying about Darwinian violence, about how there's a certain amount of violence in nature that is built into us, is built into the way that, into our brains. And, I mean, you don't look at two animals having sex 
and not realize that at first, a lot of times the female animal or dog or cat or whatever, she's not really into it at first. She has to kind of be fucked into it. You know, <laughs> she has to be able. She has to start liking it before she gets in. Gives into it, and that's yeah. just the way that that mammals are. Right. Yeah. Right. Here's a uh, couple of random notes from that year, which is John Williams was nominated twice for Munich and for Memoirs of a Geisha. This was the year that um, Three Six Mafia won for "It's Hard Out There for a Pimp" and people are out here for a pimp, and people always point to that and say. You know, Three Six Mafia has an Oscar, and so and so does it. You know, <laughs> but yeah. everybody loved that song, and it beat the In the Deep from Crash and Traveling Through Dolly Parton from Transamerica. That's the one I think everybody thought was going to win. Was mm-hmm. Dolly Parton? Um, we already talked about cinematography. Larry McMurtry won for Brokeback Mountain, and Diana Osana was one of the few people who. Um, joined the chorus of protests uh, after the fact, after the Oscars, and wrote a pretty condemning statement about the Academy. Um, Crash won for uh, a screenplay. You can tell it was a tight year because the two Best Picture frontrunners divided up screenplay as they do so many times. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Match Point, was um, Woody Allen's kind of comeback film with first time his, uh, that one of his films starred Scarlett Johansson. And a young actress named Amy Adams made a big splash in Junebug, and she was nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role, launching a very fruitful career. Junebug is such a sweet, warm, wonderful little movie, too, isn't it? I love that movie to death. Yeah, me too. I'm fond of that movie so much. And she's fantastic in it. She just glows in that movie. Yeah, and it sort of set her up to be typecast as that kind of character, but she's done, Mm. I think, a pretty good job. Um, trying to dispel that. And also, finally, King Kong. One of my favorite films of that year, actually, believe it or not. I was a big fan, and I, I wrote, <clears throat> I think, what is still my favorite review that I ever wrote about it called Tiny Dancer about King Kong. And what I liked about it was that I thought that, that Peter Jackson had solved the riddle as to why King Kong would have been interested in this little woman, because... To me, it never made sense that he was just in love with the blonde. Sorry about that. <laughs> it never made sense that he was in love with just the little blonde, you know, waspy monument to whiteness, you know. <laughs> but in this movie, he made it like she was a little dancer. She was a little entertainer, and he liked to watch her do tricks. And that made a little more sense to me than, oh, bring in the white girl so that he can fall in love with the pretty white girl. Well, that's probably what it was in the 1930 version. You know, there was even the, the racial component to that back in the 30s. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, know, the, know, the big, huge savage and the, the tiny white girl. Yep. But uh, I'm, I like the way that Peter Jackson turned that into something completely different. And I had never thought about the fact that he saw her as a as as a entertainment for him, like he was at a show and she was performing for him. But yeah. that's that's a great interpretation. I like that. Yeah. All the same, it did it did receive criticism, and it wasn't exactly well received. Although it did win sound mixing and sound editing and visual effects. So, yeah, and Memoirs of a Geisha did pretty well too, didn't it? Win three three Oscars that year. Yeah, Memoirs of a Geisha mm-hmm. was like the Les Mis of that year. It was like, mm-hmm. yeah, it was really hyped, and people thought it was going to be a huge. Best Picture. Also, there were a lot of movies that people thought were going to be big players that year that didn't end up 
Cinderella Man was supposed to be big, and it kind of fizzled. Yep, Hustle or Walk the Line. The Constant Gardener, which we haven't talked about, was was a film that just barely missed. It hit all the markers leading up to the race, but did end up getting a Best Picture nomination, The Constant Gardener. But that's one that would have would have gotten in if they extended past five for sure. And Batman Begins was in 2005, the, the beginning of the of the Nolan Batman cycle was in 2005. Mm, right, yeah. It's just so weird how those things are. You mentioned uh, Transamerica earlier. I think we should give a little shout-out to Felicity Huffman, who was nominated for Transamerica. She didn't win, but um, if memory serves, Transamerica, although fewer people saw it, it was still sort of lumped in with Brokeback as the as a representative of alternative sexualities. And I think um, I, 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 seem, I seem to recall it being treated as sort of the, the opposite side of the same coin and sort of it being this double threat in the sense that, that society was changing and, and what a huge slap in the face it was when it turns out that things hadn't really changed at all. Mm. Well, it hadn't changed between the academy. That was the slap when you realize that society is changing, when America is changing, the way that America has changed between between 2005 and, and 2014. And it just takes the academy longer to catch up. And I have said before, and I know it's a cruel, bitter way to say it, but I think it's really just a matter of attrition. I think in order to make the academy change, you have to change the academy membership. And since it's a lifetime membership, there's only one way to change that. <laughs> it's like you know what I'm saying? Yep. The older, the older, more conservative members who are just stuck in the in thinking in the in the in the thinking that they had in the 1960s and 1950s, even those people have to go away, and you have mm-hmm. to have new blood come into the academy before the academy can change. Right. And they have to outnumber the the they have to some they have to be outnumber the oldsters. I'm not even going to do the uh, box office because by now it's such a shit show. It's not even worth. Talking about. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the box office shit show. I know. Speaking of like, you know, not being nice to box office movies, it's like, you know, well they're all sequels. You know, Harry Potter, Star Wars. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so um, you want to talk about the the Terrence Malick, right? Yeah, the new world. It's you know when I talk to movie nerds and even Malik nerds, it doesn't generally come up as people's favorite. Usually, it's either Days of Heaven or I think Thin Red Line tends tend to be favored more by people. But to me, it, it was one of the most profound movie going experiences I've ever had, and it's my favorite Malik movie by by a country mile. And it was tellingly, I think it was the first one that I had seen in the moment that it came out. And this was 2005. You know, the internet was obviously talking the shit out of movies, but it was more about the fanboy, you know, superhero sci-fi stuff. And I didn't know anything about this Malick movie going in. And I, I, I knew him by his reputation and from the previous films that I'd seen, but I had no real idea what to expect. But it was the first Malick movie that I was able to make up my own mind about before all of the scholarly, you know, weighing in and and people picking it apart and trying to decide what it meant. So it 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 strikes a personal chord with me on top of the fact that it was just such a moving experience. And I think it really sort of opened the door for me to better understand Tree of Life, which would, would come later. And it, it, it seems as Malik goes along, he gets more and more um, 
uh, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for is, but just kind of not grounded in traditional notions of story and character. He's more interested in sort of weaving tapestries of mood and of image and of theme. And the New World was the the first time that he that I think he really went out there. I mean, obviously his other movies are similar, but the New World to me more so. And it just it it it's it, it the the chord that it hits and this idea about nature and and how we're basically ruining it it just it's really profound to me and just this idea that these western western christians are basically shitting the planet because they don't care about the planet because the heaven is waiting for them in the afterlife and it doesn't really matter what we do here and now but there was just such a tremendous sense of sadness when that movie ended and it was sort of symbolized by the death of of the pocahontas character that that we've just really lost something it's not it's not an innocence because i don't i think that sort of is is um it's a um, kind of a patronizing way to talk about Native Americans. They weren't innocent, but they had a definite, definitely a different relationship with nature than what we have, and it's something that I that I think we're missing. Sound of crickets chirp. <laughs> no, no, I'm just thinking of my own reaction. I'm going to put in the sound effect of crickets. What's that? I'm going to put in the sound effect. Please do. <laughs> chirp, chirp, chirp. It'll be like nature. Yeah. <laughs> nature talking yeah. back. Nature to him. Look, everybody. Right. Blades of grass and crickets chirping and Craig talking out of his ass. <laughs> but I mean, I know what you mean about, about how, how, how moving it is. Uh, um, in the new world, just uh, my, my heart was in my throat from the very first scene, the way the music swells up and then when they first glimpse the, the big ships coming in. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the end of their way of life and they don't know it yet. But but we know it because we we know what history has done. But right. just to see the, the 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 meeting of those two cultures, those two civilizations, and the way that the that the Indians are trying to fathom what to make of it, it reminded me of the way that the um, not in any kind of derogatory way at all, but it reminded me of the way that the the apes regard the monolith in two thousand one. The way they just mm-hmm. tentatively tentatively walk up and just want to to touch the armor on the soldiers and to tap it and see how it clangs because it's unlike anything they've ever seen before and it's about to change their lives and it's about to change their 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 world forever. Thank you for saying apes and not monkeys. Um, so many people say monkeys; it drives me crazy. That that's beautiful. What you guys are both saying about that film and it makes me think that 2005 was such an exceptional year for really really great movies. We haven't even got to Michael Haneke's Cachet yet. Oh, I know. Another fantastic movie. Which I have never seen. I'm sorry to oh, say. Oh, really? I was going to ask you, Craig, though, about the new world. What do you think about the different versions? For me, with the Malick movie, I'm so grateful that he has that, – that usually we hear about the longer versions of his movies, but we never get to see them. We get to, we get to hear about how much he had to cut out, but we, we never see what he cut out. But there was like a, a two-and-a-half-hour version of – of, of uh, the new world and then there's a over a no version it's over three hours long i think that was the interesting thing about that film is that i remember it came out in new york and los angeles at the end of at the end of 2005 like on the 23rd or the 25th like right around christmas time and it was in a, it was at a certain length and then it disappeared from theaters for a while it, it, it had gotten its oscar qualification then it disappeared then he re-edited it and it came back out again in a shorter form 
mm-hmm. that I, and I can't remember if I saw the shorter form or not. But then, it, then of course, it's finally come out on DVD and an extended cut that's longer than than all the other ones combined. But the thing that that's the weird thing about that movie specifically, but his movies in general, they're such a fluid thing that, and he has such a control over them that he can he can pull things out and put things back in, and it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily harm them. I'm not convinced that the shorter version is inherently worse. It's maybe not quite the movie he wanted yeah, at the uh-huh. time, but it still works works as it is. I, I prefer the longer one, just knowing that I'm seeing as much of it as I possibly can. But right, that's you know. my opinion too. They can never get enough Malik, and so the more we see of it, the better. And what I like about his movies is the amount of silence and 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 the montages that he does, and it's like an almost an impressionistic sense you get from his movies. And the more time that you have to meditate on what you're seeing and not have not be interrupted by dialogue or action or something that's driving the plot forward, the more you have to sit and just contemplate what you're seeing on the screen the better it is for me, the more I can get into it, the more hypnotic it becomes. It, and it, it really seems like really the longer his movies are sometimes, the quicker they fly by. Right, and because they, they draw you in and they mesmerize you. And they, mm-hmm. he, he has the patience to, to just watch a couple of characters just fooling around and, and doing things. It doesn't, he doesn't always have to be advancing the plot or advancing the characters. He's just, he lets every scene live and breathe, and, and it's a really beautiful, unique way of making films. And she's not the only one who does that, and I'm not sure that I would want everyone to do that, um, but it, it its uniqueness is always welcome every time he comes out with a new film. There's another director who does that who did it this year in 2005, and I would be remiss knowing what a... a fanboy i am for ridley scott i would be i would feel bad if i didn't mention kingdom of heaven which didn't really make much of an impression that year when it first came out it was a two-hour cut of the movie but the three-hour cut of that movie is extra is extraordinary it's something really amazing and it's a, it's a perfect example i mean like the counselor when he added more footage to the counselor it actually made the movie worse it 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 explained things too much and it had you could really see the reason why they cut all the things out of the counselor that they did to make it a shorter version. But with, with Kingdom of Heaven, everything he added adds so much more depth and, and feeling to the movie. It just makes it a totally different movie altogether. I'm so proud There's a of fine myself. line when you start adding stuff to a film. I think um, Aliens is another example. When Cameron released that on video, he added a bunch of scenes that sort of developed the Newt character. And I've always hated the extra additions because it takes a lean, forceful, compelling driving action film and slows it way down and distracts you from all the things that are good about it. So mm-hmm. it, I, I don't know that the director is always the best one to make that decision, but in some cases and kingdom of heaven is certainly one of them. And so, so is a new, uh, the new world where it, it more is definitely better. I just want to say two things. One, I'm proud of myself for not making a mean joke about the counselor. Cause I almost, I know I'm pr- I just, I heard you almost bite your tongue. I think I, I heard bit you bite tongue. your tongue. <laughs> But the second thing is, I just this is kind of a crap all over it moment where I'm just going to say this, and because I, I was thinking about it today as I was writing my rant about women filmmakers, is that you know we give so much leeway and indulgence to filmmakers like um, Terrence Malick to make movies like that, and you know women just never get that opportunity. They're never kind of cradled along and and worshipped in the same way as a male director. It's like a woman couldn't just come along and, and do that and just make a a think piece about like moods and stuff that's happening in front of you and for three hours and have people just sit there mesmerized. Like mm-hmm. women just are never, ever going to be afforded that luxury. 
Even when Sophia a woman Coppola. is given an opportunity to make a movie, she has to color within the lines. Oh, for she has sure. to really stay within the lines Absolutely. of the coloring book, or if people think that she's going, that she's gone wild, that she's gone yeah. nuts, and there's she no, has to, she can't be reined in. There's no place for a filmmaker, a female filmmaker mm-hmm. like Robert. Julie Tamer came as close as you can get um, in 2007 was, with Across the Universe, and she was uniformly kicked to the curb by yep, people. And she would be. I was just writing today in my piece, which no one read. That if Noah had been directed by a woman, the same exact movie had been directed by a woman, she would have been patted politely on the back and told to get the fuck out of Hollywood. I didn't use those exact (laughs) words, but basically, yeah, she would be considered, oh, my God, can you believe that movie she made? But because it's Aronofsky, because people appreciate his work, they they indulge him that opportunity to explore that arena. It sort of like reminds me of the toddler. It's like, go out and explore. You know, it's just... We're going to be here watching. We're going to be, we're so proud of you, you know, explore. I just, I noticed that. I don't think it means that you have to not appreciate all the great male directors. I just, when I'm, I'm just paying attention to that Terrence Malick conversation you guys had. And I just thought that's so funny because that is so singularly a male privilege. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I will, you know, of course, I'm more fond of Noah than you are, although I don't think it's a great, great movie by any uh, stretch of the imagination. But I do think that when you know that there's a director like Darren Aronofsky, who has done serious, intelligent, um, profound movies in the past, that I do, I will admit that I give him a little extra credit, that I'm a little more patient with seeing his movie than I would be if it was by an unknown director. Yeah, if, I, I if it had been done by an unknown director, I would have thought, what the fuck is going on with this movie? This is crazy. Absolutely. But because it's Aronofsky, I will think, well, he must be trying to do something here that I am just not catching because I know he, I know from his past work that he's a genius and I just need to yeah. try to reach, I need to reach out and try to reach what he's doing instead of dismissing it. So I admit that I will do that for a director like Aronofsky. What awesome if someday women i mean sofia coppola is maybe the jane campion they're they're kind of the closest you come to that but they're not revered anywhere near there's still a lot of resistance to both of them especially sofia to this day and i do i do the same thing like i anything scorsese you know makes or you know steven spielberg or you know coen brothers it's like forget it you know always look at their movies and, and worship them and and be understanding when they don't do a perfect job and wait excitedly for their next one. And it's just something we don't do for women. It's just interesting. Should we um, should we talk about North Country a little bit as a movie directed by a woman um, about a woman? Or and should again, we just leave totally it shit on that one. What's that? That one was sort of run out of town, too, that. It was, and you know, watching it again, it, it's another case where it's too bad it, it wasn't a little bit better of a movie or more subtle of a movie, but it's a million times better than Crash, and it's an equally important subject, um, the whole idea of sexual harassment in the workplace, and it just, it, it deals with that subject yeah. um, really well, and the performances are fantastic. It's a little odd to me that, though, that a movie about called North Country that has Bob Dylan songs in it doesn't have the girl from the North Country in it. It doesn't make any sense, but that's that's a, that's a side I think thing. it was a licensing thing, but I know. Probably, I but to, it had other Bob Dylan songs in it, but anyway. And I asked people it, to test themselves. Take a movie like that and put a revered director's name on it and ask yourself, how differently would you look at that movie? Mm-hmm. That's, no, I that's see exactly what you mean. Yeah. It really is a matter of perception. If it's Altman, Robert Altman, I bet you that movie would be declared a masterpiece. Just guessing. Mm. He would probably never make that movie, but... You not know, the same way. Not the same way, but if he had, there's no way the critics are going to shit on it. Anyway, that's beside the point. But yes, Charlize Theron in a 
you know, uh, her follow-up to Monster, right? Wasn't that last year? Monster? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the previous year. It's a, it's a, I think it's an even better performance because it's a more grounded human being character. You know, she's a, she's a person that you could know. Whereas her character in Monster is a little more, a little more over the top. Whereas this one is just a, a pretty regular girl, and she pretty much hits it out of the park. Mm, she got nominated for it too. Yeah. Frances McDormand is great in it. Um, Jeremy Renner is pretty good. I think it was probably the first time I had noticed him. Um, it was weird though seeing um, Woody Harrelson on screen with Michelle Monaghan when it wasn't True Detective. <laughs> Neat. <laughs> I'm going to have to revisit North Country for sure. I, I was left wishing that it had been a little more, a, a, a little subtler and a little, a, a, I'm not sure exactly what the words I'm looking for is, but just in general, I wish that it had been a, a, a little sharper of film. But it, like I said, it's way better than Crash and the subject matter is, is equally important. Mm. One thing you have to wonder too about with a movie like North Country that's directed by a woman is is how much, if if a, if, a, if the studio or producers are beginning to see, or the distributor is starting to see that it's not exactly what they expected, how much do they, are they able to tamper with the movie that a woman makes, much more so than they would be able to do with a, with a male director? Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, I always wonder if, if a woman had as much complete creative control over the movies that she made, it, what, what kind of movies we would be seeing. Right. Women just aren't in the power seat at all. They're yeah. just nowhere near Interesting, it. North Country is the, the music scores the direct, um, written by the same composer as uh, Brokeback Mountain, Gustavo uh, Santa Santa Leila, Santa Lala. Hmm. And we were talking about how Amber Heard is in that movie. Amber Heard, who is now marrying Johnny Depp. Right. Oh, that yeah. was um, her first. I think her first film role. She'd been in some TV stuff, but uh, she plays young Charlize Theron. She's so pretty. Yes. And on that note, on that bittersweet note. I think we should say goodnight, you guys. This has been a really fun podcast, but we're almost at two hours. I'm not sure how much of it I can keep, you know? It's a long did we Did we ride 2005 hard, and should we put it away wet? We're riding it hard. We're putting it away wet. I think we will, I ended up walking it out, though, so it's not being put away wet. All we right. walked that baby out, so now she's nice and dry. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Sorry. And on that creepy note... <laughs> Sorry. All right, I'm going to stop recording now. You've been listening to episode 64 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. You could follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast, and we will be back next week with another episode. At-